I think to blast someone away at close range, three people at close range, that's not someone who's an amateur. You know, that's not an amateur's to do that. Because that takes, you've got to be quite, you've got to be a certain temperament, let's say, to be able to do that at close range. He pulled out a knife from the back of his trousers and he had a kitchen knife. And then we've got him contained. There was like four officers around him and I've drew my CS spray and I sprayed him and he's thrown this knife and it's just gone. The blood trail leads from a flat on the ground floor all over the communal areas, all the way up the stairs and he's been cut from ear to ear, right? And there's just, just a hole in his neck, yeah? Guy, all I remember was a big roar as this guy just jumped into us, right? He was like, I remember it. Rah! And he jumped into us and I literally got flung across Manchester Road. I landed in the middle of the road on my back. And then we looked at this thing more, more closely and we could see that there was a like a cap on the end that you could unscrew. So we unscrewed this cap and there's a 2-2 round sitting in there. And if any one of us had flicked that lever, we would have shot ourselves through the eyeball. But he had exploded like Michelin Man. I thought the guy was black, but he was white because he'd gone completely black. He had these huge blisters over him. Huge blisters. He had maggots coming out of his mouth. Uh, his face was all decomposing, you know. And the smell was off the scale. But when the undertakers arrived, they were, they were actually, one of them was sick. And that's rare. That's rare. Because when they put him into the body bag, he popped. Oh, oh! You know? I, I, I'm a nice person, but if someone just who doesn't know me wants to attack me, then I'm going to go for the jugular, you know? Hope you're enjoying our podcast. Here's a word from a sponsor, Atlas VPN. This is the best VPN deal in the market. Enjoy the most affordable online protection for just $1.80 per month plus three months extra of 30-day money-back guarantee. Unlock your favorite content from all over the world. Can't access friends or other legendary shows on your Netflix while being abroad? That's not a problem anymore. Atlas VPN got you covered. Hey, the Savile Doc, BBC... Check it out in America. Know what I'm saying? Wink, wink. (laughs) (laughs) Keep your Google searches in private. Looking for something on Google? With Atlas VPN, you can search the web with real and organic search results and do it without tracking your activity. Go away, feds. (laughs) Grab the big deal because now Atlas VPN Premium is just $1.83 per month plus three months extra and with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Protect your privacy and get many benefits of Atlas VPN for the ridiculously low price. You can take this deal by clicking the link in the video description below. Be quick as it's a limited time offer. Stop ads and malware. This is more than just a VPN. It blocks all the malicious links, ads and trackers and notifies you when someone is trying to steal your data. And we are inundated with hackers. So Atlas VPN, take that hackers. Save some coins while shopping online. Get the best deal with shopping online, including online subscriptions, Netflix, Spotify, airlines, hotels, and much more. Protect unlimited devices. Atlas VPN protects all your devices with a single subscription. Check out the link in the description box for Atlas VPN if you're watching this on YouTube. And I am presently changing my VPN as we speak on my phone. So we've got a story from Andy. He's been in the London Met Police for 27 years. 
This story has never been told before. It's going to be absolutely mind-blowing from what I've been speaking to him about in the emails. And today, um, we're going to start out, I'm just going to drop you in the middle of it with a few little anecdotes from his career. He also knows a bit about the Essex Boys case as well, which there's one of them buried not far from here. So we will get to that. And once we've dropped you in and you've heard a few of the stories, then we're going to begin, you know, how his life started into this and go through it and all in the order it happened. And at the end, we're going to be talking about his experience, how it soured and the corruption and that side of things. All right, so huge thank you for coming on, Andy. That's great. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And you were telling us when we were sat in the garden, there was a few little stories. One of them involved a knife that flew right by your head. And we don't cut any long stories short on this podcast, so as much detail as possible, please. Right, okay. Um, we're probably looking at back at about 2001, 2002, when I was working at Limehouse Police Station. And um, colleagues of mine had a call to a hospital uh, a psychiatric hospital called St. Clement's Hospital, which was right next door to Myelin Tube, effectively. And um, they arrived on scene and they came across this guy that had been found wandering through the ward by staff. So um, he was escorted outside and two officers were on scene talking to him and he'd been patted down to make sure he didn't have any weapons on him. Um and, uh, yeah, while they were talking to him, he seemed quite reasonable. And another call came out. So what did he look like? He was a Somalian guy. Yeah. Yeah, Somalian guy. Uh, didn't speak any English, apparently. But, uh, yeah, another call came out. And the two officers that were there dealing with him, they said, look, we're fine. You go off and deal with that call. So in, we, we jump in our car. We drive down the road. And we get about 200 yards down the road. And all of a sudden, these officers put up for urgent assistance, which is like, the sort of highest request for assistance you can get, really. It basically sort of pulls out all the stops. People will come from far and wide to help you. So, um, yeah, what what happened is um, he pulled out a knife from the back of his trousers and he had a kitchen knife, large kitchen knife, and he lunged at this officer and it had gone through his jacket, but luckily not him. And the officer that he was with had the presence of mind to grab hold of his colleague and just pull him backwards to create some distance, you know. So anyway, we turned the car around, and I was the passenger in the car, and the guy that was driving it went straight... By this time, he was walking down the footway along Myland Road with this knife. We could see the kitchen knife. It's like 10 inches long. And we've driven past him and turned first left. But as we've turned first left, the guy that was driving stopped, and this guy's walking straight towards my near side door. So I'm thinking, well, if I get out of the car, I'm there, and I've got no space, no no, no gap so I locked the door because I thought he was going to open the door and try and attack me in the dry, in the seat you know so uh, anyway luckily he, went, he walked around the back of the car so I got out and then we've got him contained there was like four officers around him and I've drew my CS spray and I sprayed him in the in 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 the on you know upper body with CS spray and he's just taken a long glance at me and he's just like a real concerted effort and he's looked at the and I've got another officer right next to me, and he's thrown this knife. And it's just gone straight past our heads. You know, if it had embedded itself in our head, you know, we probably wouldn't be here now, you know. But that was probably the nearest I came to, you know, quite, you know, getting seriously injured. When, but, you, when you said he was holding your gaze, yeah, what did you see in his eyes? 
Well, it, he he was just looking where to throw that knife. Was he? You know, he was aiming that knife. He it was a concerted effort to to get that knife in our head. Yeah. You know. But anyway, once he threw the knife, he was no longer sort of armed at that point. So he was detained, cuffed, and taken away. But it, it turned out this is the crux of it, really. It turned out that that hospital was supposed to be detaining him under the Mental Health Act. They knew of him. They knew that he was a threat, and they just didn't want him there. So what they decided to do was call the police and tell us that he was trespassing because they didn't want him in the hospital. So basically, they were trying to kick a dangerous uh, person onto the streets, okay? Um, And it nearly cost us our lives, you know? So, of course, I wasn't very happy about that. We, We did make representations to the various people back at the station, um, but nothing really came of it at all, really. He could have just plunged that into anyone on the street. Anybody walking Absolutely. down the street? Absolutely. But this was, you know, this was quite late at night. We're probably talking about sort of round about sort of midnight time, yeah. I would guess, you know. And there was another situation with that hospital that ended up with a tragedy at a train station. Yeah, probably a year or so, two years later, maybe. It wouldn't have, it, it would have been round about 2002, 2003, I guess. Um, there was an incident whereby... I was uh, instructing a group of street duties officers. They're people that have just finished training at Hendon. And it's like an interim course between going out and into the big world on their own. So they get 10 weeks of close tuition, you know. And we were doing that. And um, there was a guy that walked into that same hospital um, late afternoon and pleaded for help because he said he he wanted to kill somebody. And um, they just turned him away. Turned him out onto the street. No, go away. Not interested. So out he goes and he turns left up towards Myland Tube Station. And he and he goes down onto the platform and he just goes up to this guy. And I can't remember the guy's name, but he just he just pushed him under the train, killed him. You know, so it was our street duties group that actually arrested that guy, you know. What was the aftermath of the guy going on the track? Did the train just straight run over him? Yeah, yeah, killed him, yeah. I didn't have any dealings with that side of things, thankfully, because it's not something that I would relish in dealing with, to be honest. Uh, it's not a pretty sight. And uh, no, we we just dealt with the guy that had, that had done it and we, we arrested him. He was taken away and it would have been dealt with, with by British Transport Police. I actually met a guy who worked for them and he was the guy they would send in to pick up the body parts. Yeah, not nice. And he said he has to have months off work after each incident to psychologically process it mm. you can only do so many a year as well oh really yeah 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 wow. it's not it's not going to be a pleasant task that's for sure no but it ended up unpleasant with the bendy bus as well didn't it yeah that's not something that i dealt with directly but i do know of an instant um uh, where a bendy bus was going down the romford road in uh where would it have been it would have been newham and uh it picked up a, a pedestrian uh, took this pedestrian down the road. I think it was for about a mile. When you say picked up a pedestrian, what do you mean? Well, I think he got caught up on the bus some, somehow. I don't know. I think it was within between the two. Like the bend snagged yeah, him. I th- yeah. I, I, it, I'm not sh- quite sure exactly how he got picked up, but the, the bus caught him. He got caught in the bus. Whether he got caught in the doors, I don't know. I wouldn't have thought so. They've got safety mechanisms. But he got caught up on the bus and he was dragged down the road for about a mile. And I spoke to the officer that did pick that guy up. And, and you know, he, he just had a very matter-of-fact way of dealing with it. And he, he just said, no, the guy's dead. For me, it's a piece of meat, and, and that's the way I deal with it. Oh. And, 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 yeah, fair play to him. You know, if you can if you can detach yourself that much, then that's great. But I 
that's it's not something I would have liked to have dealt with at all. Um, but that's the nature of traffic work. Traffic work was quite it was quite brutal in a way because people just were ended very suddenly. And, and unlike crime, where crime is generally the people that are getting killed on the streets, there's a story. They're a drug dealer or they're a they're a robber or whatever it is. There's there's gangland connotations yeah with traffic it's just it's just like ordinary people and they've just they've overturned their car coming back from christmas shopping and all the all the christmas uh shopping for the kids is in the in the back you know and they're laying there and the phone's ringing and and it's just really human and i've got to be honest it's it's more difficult to deal with for me personally i can only talk for myself it's more difficult to deal with than crime ever was and a lot of people sort of poo-poo traffic work. You know, they think, oh, it's not real police work. They're just after getting tickets and things like that, but they don't see the other side. What happens when people don't maintain their cars, keep their tyres at the correct, you know, pressure or, you know, tread depth and all that. We're going to get to the outcome of those stories yeah, later on. Yeah. All right, Andy, so we're going to go back now and just tell your life story in the order it happened. Yeah. And... We're over in Essex. Is this the area you're from? Yeah, I was brought up. Literally, I grew up a hundred yards from this house. So yeah, I, I've sort of moved back home in the last few years. Uh, my mum my still lives over the back there. Um, so yeah, born and bred in 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 Essex. Um, and you're a bit of a prankster in your school years. Yeah, a little bit. We, you know, it's like it was just mischief. We we weren't up to anything sort of horrendous but it was mischief we weren't happy unless we had someone we was annoying a neighbor or letting off a firework on someone's doorstep or playing knockdown ginger and it, and that progressed to making bombs and things you know like homemade bombs which we actually did do and it, and it worked out quite well actually um we went down the river because we're not far from the thames and uh we got a biscuit tin and we filled it with and we put in some and we buried it in a mud bank and waited for oh waited for the thud, and it absolutely destroyed the mud bank. So that's how we used to make our entertainment, you know, back in the day, because nobody had a lot of money back in the seventies and eighties, you know, and, yeah. and 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 so you just had to make your own entertainment. So that's what we did. What were you like as a school kid? Did you have a lot of friends? Were you popular? Yeah, I was. I was, I was just a, a fair to middling student, I guess. I, I I've never been one to go out and be like the life and soul of the party, although. You know, I've been known to be, but to be honest with you, um, yeah, I would say just a. I, I used to just keep my head down. Really, um, I wasn't. I didn't excel at anything in particular, um, and and I think that's a shame, really, because now in later life, I realise that I could have probably done pretty much anything I turned my mind to, but I didn't realise that until later in life. You know, we we went to school. It was a, a comprehensive school. It, it was in the seventies. You know. Teachers were bullies. Uh, ed- people generally weren't enthralled with education back in those days. You know, that's that's the crux of it. And uh, but we had some funny moments. You did know? you ever get caned? No, I never did. <laughs> no, I was actually quite a good lad, actually. In in as much as I never got caught. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, so I, I was clever. If you're gonna if you're gonna misbehave, don't get caught. And so I never got caught for anything. So what subjects did you like the most? I'll probably say geography. Geog- I found geography quite interesting. Yeah, yeah physical geography. Like I, I was quite interested in the geolo- geology type side. You know, rift mountains and drumlins and folds and faults and all that sort of stuff. 
But I was never, I never excelled at anything. I've got to be honest. I, I never excelled at anything. And I, I wanted to go into, um, ultimately, I wanted to get an engineering apprenticeship. We're, we're talking like 1983 when I left school and there was 4 million people unemployed. And it was difficult to get apprenticeships. A few of my friends did. And there were companies around here back in the day that really made stuff. We used to have, um, you know, Marconi's Avionics and Marconi's Radar up in Chelmsford. And then we had Fords. We had Fords at Basildon, Fords at Dagnum. There was, there was loads of stuff around here. But getting an apprenticeship was really difficult. Um, so I went to college, did a bit of time at college, um, basically electrical installations and things like that. And I, and I started a second year. But then basically I joined I joined the Royal Naval Reserve in 84. And that really led to me going into the Royal Navy as a career because I really enjoyed it. And, I, and it gave me a bit of an insight as to, to what was involved. What was, I, what was the training like? The training, it was absolutely brilliant. I really enjoyed it. As long as you don't take it personally... It was actually really good fun, and I and 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 I and that's when I realised that I could do anything. I sort of turned my mind to really. Um, it, I really was I re- it like drill sergeants screaming at you that kind of thing. Yeah, there was, and it was actually quite tough then. You know, it's much not. I'm not saying Royal Marines tough or anything like that, but it was just probably as they they weren't they 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 didn't pussyfoot around. You know, I was a class leader, and um, I remember we turned up at gym, and you had two gym kits, and you had a blue one and a white one, and we turned up in the wrong one. And of course, as class leader, I'm the one that's getting the flack for it. And you had a deputy class leader as well, who actually went on to become a PTI. Huh. And uh, it, they, the PTI came up to me and he said, why are you all in the wrong kit? And I just went, oh, I'm sorry, staff, no excuse. And he just looked at me and punched me in the stomach. And then he went up to the deputy class leader and said, why are you all in the wrong kit? And he basically said the same thing. Sorry, staff. Um, I've obviously made a mistake. And he got needing the balls, you know. And... Can't do that these days. But they can call they? that bullying now. Yeah. But we 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 looked at that as character building. It, I didn't I didn't take it personally at all, at all. It was just that's just how it is, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was absolutely brilliant. They used to turn your mess over like they they'd give you a kit inspection. Everyone would have their kit absolutely immaculate, you know. Or most of us would. There'd always be the odd one that would ruin it, and they'd just come in. You'd go for you. Your, your your food or lunch or whatever and you come back and they would have gone in there and ransacked everything they would have taken your boots that you'd spent ages polishing and they would have smashed them against the wall broken all the polish off they'd go to your ear defenders and they'd take them out and they'd throw them around everywhere but i saw it for what it was that was just a way of building resilience and also teamwork because everybody has to muck in to get that room immaculate again and that's all it was. It was teamwork. And and so I saw that right from the start. So for me, it was great. Loved it. So were you deployed? Yeah, I deployed uh, twice uh, on, well, I did a, I did a three-month med deployment uh, back in about 87, something like that. And then I deployed to the Persian Gulf in 1989. And then I went back for the Gulf War in 1991. So did it get a bit crazy with around the Gulf War time? <sighs> Depends what you mean crazy, really. It's all it's all uh, relative, isn't it? You know, um, yeah, it did. And the naval side of things doesn't really get told. You know, everyone knows about the tank battles and the air war, but no one knows really what went on out in the sea because we didn't have a lot of press with us or anything like that. And it didn't get reported that I saw on the TV much. Little bit. You were able to say what did go on? 
Well, basically, you know, the land war, I think, lasted for, and I'm not taking anything away from anybody. I'm just saying how it is. But the, the land war lasted like, I don't know, four days, something like that. But the, the air war and the sea war really was going on for the duration because you've got to remember those planes that were doing the raids, they were flying off of aircraft carriers and aircraft carriers have to be protected from both air attack, land, uh, sea attack and also land attack. They also have to be protected from the mines and the mines were the big problem because Saddam Hussein had basically dropped hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of mines we're talking like the big World War Two type contact mines with the big spikes, you know. So basically, a contact mine jet. He, he, he dropped hundreds and thousands, even of those mines, all over the Gulf. But they weren't moored; they were just drifting with the tides. So you know, we did come across two U.S. ships that hit mines. One of them is USS Tripoli, and it opened my eyes when I saw the damage because I was on a. Basically, I was on a ship, that ship there, actually, RFA Argus, which was um, a forward casualty evacuation ship because it had helicopter capability. And uh, we we came up alongside the Tripoli, and the hole in the side of this thing was the size of a house. And they reckon that one compartment along, it would have killed 70 guys. Good grief. One compartment. So very lucky. And the ship nearly sank. It was listing at sort of 45 degrees. And the reason you could see the hole... It's because the hole, funnily enough, contrary to popular belief, you think it would be underwater. The hole was out of the water. So what they did is they flooded the other side of the ship to bring the, the hole out of the water. Wow. And so you could see it. It was totally wow. exposed. And it was listing to... The hole was on the starboard side, the right-hand side, and the ship was listing to the other side, and the hole was there. And I just went, wow, that is powerful. And after that, it sort of made you respect it a little bit more, what these things could do. But then the other ship was USS Princeton, which was one of their big destroyers, you know, and that hit a mine, and it, uh, that that was disabled. A guy got thrown over the side, and no one was killed on either of those ships, luck, fortunately. But a guy got, I think he was a mine lookout, and he got catapulted over the side, like springboarded <laughs> over the side, because it's quite a violent explosion, you know. Wow. But, yeah. Did you find it all exciting at that young age then? Did I find it exciting? Yeah, I did. But it was also really worrying. I've got to be honest, it was worrying. I, I, I never, no one ever spoke to anyone about, you know, the build up to it. But we knew and we were told that basically if they use chemical weapons, it could go tactical nuclear. That's, and I was told that by my CO. Ooh, that's you worrying, know? isn't it? And of course, when the chemical alarms then go off, you think, ah, this is a problem because we were told it could go ta- tactical nuclear if they use chemical weapons. And now we've got our chemical alarm sounding and we think, wow, this is a big escalation, you know. But um, yeah, they had a capability to Iraq, but they didn't really have the training. Funnily enough, when I was actually in training, like phase two training, we had Iraqi officers huh. with us. You know, we were training the Iraqi armed forces. They were friends of ours back in 86, you know, and now we're fighting them, you know, but they obviously didn't listen very well during their training <laughs> because they were they were making a lot of basic errors and things, you know, but on one, one occasion, I think they were trying to, their patrol boats um, got seen by air uh, aircraft. And it led to a turkey, what they called a turkey shoot. It's technically called the Battle of Bubian, but it turned into a turkey shoot. And I think they lost 21 vessels in a day, um, pretty much. A lot. 
and 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 it, and and they got hammered, you know, absolutely hammered with all types of a lot of British uh, helicopters were, were were sinking ships, you know, never got reported anywhere, but we sank quite a lot of ships. Um, yeah, but they did have a pop back. They we we did come under Exocet attack uh, at one point um, by a, a two Iraqi. Well, there were actually three Iraqi Mirages. Two got shot down, and they were shot down by a. Um, Saudi Arabian F-15. And it's actually YouTube footage of it, if you look, yeah, <laughs> of the intercept. But they reckon it was a political, from what I gathered, it was a bit of a political stunt because there were two American F-14s much closer and more able to intercept. But they, they, they told a, an F-15, a Saudi Arabian F-15, on his own, which is really unusual because fighters usually operate as a pair. And they'd sent this guy on his own and uh yeah he did shoot them down just before they got to like exocet launch range because they had four if, if there was some people say there was two but i distinctly remember saying uh hearing there were three uh i as far as i i recall two were shot down one one turned turned away and chickened out and went home but uh you know they 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 were very close to launching exocet and we were the we were the ship we were the ship because the edge of the foot, we was up the, the northeastern edge of the formation. We had a, a ship like a, a frigate that was, they call it a goalkeeper. So it was a Type 22 frigate, HMS Brazen. And the idea is it would use its close in weapon systems to protect us because we didn't have missiles. Okay, being a forward casualty reception ship, you know. But HMS Brazen, Seawolf. Weapons went down right at the material time. And this happened in the Falklands. Exactly the same thing happened in the Falklands. And that's how HMS Coventry got sank. Uh, so at the material time, they need to use the weapons. The system went down. Mm. But yeah, that was that was interesting because I remember when those planes got shot down and I remember jumping around going, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, it, probably probably not as politically correct as that, though. Um, I, I, I've never been so relieved in my life when I heard those planes got shot down. But in the cold light of day, that was uh, two people dead. You know, Indeed. in the cold light of day. Yeah. So there's nothing funny about it, really. No. But at the time, it's self-preservation, you know. So what happened in Kenya? There was a helicopter crash. Yeah, we went to we went to the Gulf, Persian Gulf again in in eighty nine, and um, we'd just been to Mombasa. We 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 deployed out there with you used to send three ships out there, so they'd have a Sea Dart ship, a Sea Wolf ship, and a well, and, and two Sea Wolf ships generally. Um, we'd just been into Mombasa. We'd had two weeks in Mombasa in Kenya, um, which was great, and we're we're coming back out into the towards the Persian Gulf. HMS Brilliant is going into Mombasa and they had a lottery on board. They had a lottery on board to get seats on the helicopter to fly to the airport to meet their families for two weeks leave. All right. So these guys were all potting in raffle tickets and things like this or lotteries or whatever to get seats on this aircraft. And uh, sadly, the aircraft took off nine people on board. So you had the pilot, the observer and the air crewman, six passengers and it was flying over the Kenyan bush towards Mombasa Airport. And it, it transpired. What happened was there was a ball bearing loose in one of the door the door runners. Yes, the side door. And the air crewman leant out to open the side door. 
and it fell off because there was a ball bearing missing and it hit the tail rotor and down it went. All nine were killed. One of them was a friend friend of Prince Andrew, uh, the pilot. And we we heard about this and yeah, that was quite a low moment. I've got to be honest because we we weren't on that ship but even so, they deployed with us, and it, it was it was quite close to home. So yeah, that was quite that, that was when you realise that you know it's quite a dangerous job potentially, and things can go wrong. And he- I've never liked helicopters since. Never been a- if someone offers me a helicopter ride, I'd be like, mm, no, rather not, you know, because there's other people going them all the time. I know people that work offshore, and they're in helicopters all the time, and and you know, fair play. But for me, since then, I've never been a fan. How dangerous was the tanker fire? Yeah, well, there's probably two occasions in the in the navy where I come quite close to getting killed. That was one of them, and uh, basically we was on our, on our way down to Mauritius. Same deployment, same deployment. We're down to, going down to Mauritius right at the end of the deployment for a bit of a jolly down now before we went home to the UK. And um, there was a there was a tanker called the MV Drasterios. And um, that had that had caught fire. They'd lost all their power, and I think the distress signal was sent on a portable radio. That's that's sort of the position they were in. Anyway, we went to assist it, and um, at the time, I was doing a thing called they call it flunky. Right, everyone has to take their turn in the canteen. What pot washing, basically? I only ever did it once in my service, right? And I actually quite liked it because it meant you didn't you didn't watch keep, so you had all night in bed. You just worked during the day got your head down at night it was quite civilized really which normally you was getting woken up at four in the morning to go and watch and stuff so it was actually quite good but i was flunky that day and um they needed people for firefighting team right and, and i thought yeah I'll, I'll, I'll volunteer for that they always say never volunteer don't they but i thought yeah that seems good because it's not every day you go, get to go on a tanker and deal with a fire so I volunteered for it. And I, I, I was doing a thing called boundary calling, which is if you imagine like a, a, a ship's compartment has got six sides, you've got a top, a bottom and four walls, yeah? Mm. If you've got a fire in that compartment, well, convection means that that fire will spread to the next compartment and so on and so forth. So what you do is contain the, the, the bo- contain that compartment with, with water just to keep the walls and the bulkheads and, and that w- cool, yeah? So it doesn't spread. I was doing that and... I've been in training and I've been into, you know, firefighting in training and we dealt with real oil fires, right? Where they, where you come down a ladder and you've got this cauldron of burning oil and the heat was really intense, but it was nothing like the heat. And we weren't even in the compartment that was on fire. We were just boundary calling and we had a free, free flow of water of probably a foot. Okay. Maybe a little bit more that we're treading around in. And it was like the hottest bath you've ever experienced. But anyway, cut a long story short, I uh, I stumbled on a hose and I fell against the door and the door led down into a machinery space and the door opened as I fell against it and I was falling into the machinery space and this guy just leant out, grabbed me by the collar and pulled me back. And it, it, very, very lucky that I never fell. I, I, I don't know what would have happened if I'd fallen down there. You know, but yeah, it turned out we had loads of stowaways on board, or they had loads of stowaways on board as well. I think they were Kenyan stowaways, and they were doing more to put the fire out and help put the fire out than the actual crew were, because <laughs> the crew just wanted to get off and have their salvage. I, I don't know. There was a, there was a big legal wrangle going on over um, salvage rights, 
One minute they wanted us to pot the fire out, next minute they wanted us to get off, depending on where the tug was that was going to come and help them, because they have to pay for salvage, you see. So every member of that crew, including myself, got what they call salvage money. It's not a lot. You're never going to retire on it. <laughs> but it's, it's a, it's, they look at the pound signs, you know, and, and, and they were like, get off the ship, get on the ship, get off the ship, mm-hmm. you know, and it, 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 was, it was quite farcical, really. Did you say there were two tanker situations no we we had one 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 incident with the tanker the mv drasterios but we also dealt with another another an oil rig supply vessel in the gulf which was uh the atlas i think it was called i can't remember what the problem was with that to be honest and 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 i had a few during my service uh at these uh salvage type things uh there was one in the north not north sea irish sea one in the irish sea as well but um yeah they're, they're, they're always uh they're always quite interesting you know. And then you went over to the Gulf War. We talked about that already, the mine threat. So what made you want to move out of the Navy? Well, basically, I I realised that it wasn't going to be a long-term thing for me, purely because as much as I really enjoyed it, um, I didn't want to be in my, like, age 40, early 40s trying to find a new job and they say well what's your cv and you say well i'm really i'm really good at communications you know it's a specialized subject yeah it it doesn't although there's there's aspects of it that will carry over into lots of different roles the actual training itself is only of any use within the royal navy so you know i I just thought to myself no i need to get out now or not now but i need to get out it's not going to be a full-time 22-year career for me but also the money was pretty crap as well. And I met my wife and we were going to, you know, we, we, we got engaged. And, and I, I took a job at um, Whitehall. So we, you did three years, I think it was three years short uh, sea time. And then he was entitled to six months on a shore base. They wanted to send me to, to Gibraltar for 18 months. And I thought, nah, I know the people that are going to Gibraltar. I've been there several times and I'm going to turn into an alcoholic. Right, and I, honestly, that was my reason for not taking that job. And I actually said to my divisional officer, "Like, is there anything else I can go to? Is there any other job I can do? I really don't want to go now. I'm just going to drink myself into a stupor because the drink culture was massive, you know." And he said, "Well, okay, let me have a look." And he came back and he said, "Well, what about uh, Whitehall for six months?" And I went, "Brilliant, brilliant." So I went to Whitehall and I was working in the what they call the Citadel, which is that building as you go through um, Admiralty Arch on the left with all the ivy growing up it. I worked in there. And uh, while I was there, I applied for the police. Why the police? Well, no particular reason. I, I, I've got a co- I had a cousin at the time who was in the police. He joined a, a few years before me. And he said to me, have you thought about the police? It's, it's quite good, you know, good pay and, you know, good pension, et cetera, et cetera. But what I did know is I didn't want to go into a dead-end job, right? So if I'm going to leave the Navy, I want something with a bit of excitement. I want something with a, a career structure and something that was secure. So I thought, yeah, I'll give it a go. So I applied. While I was at Whitehall, so if I'd gone to Gibraltar, I wouldn't have applied because there was no way of getting time off to go for my interview at selection and stuff. So, yeah, while I was at Whitehall, I applied, and I I really didn't care whether I got it. That's the honest truth. I didn't care, <laughs> right? But I got it. I went. You had to go for a two-day selection at Hendon, 
and you had to do various like written tests and you had to do an, a, a, like a, an autobiography and you had to go for medicals and, and, and then, and then you had an interview, you know, and to be honest with you, I think because I didn't really care, I think I just came across, I, I, there was no nerves. So I came across as myself and, and it worked quite well. You know, the interview was quite interesting because there was, from what I remember, it was a superintendent and a chief inspector. And the superintendent, you know, sort of sat there and, and he sort of said, well, you know, why do you want to join the police and what are you doing now and all this sort of stuff. And it was really, really straightforward. And he, he leant over to the chief inspector and he said, okay, um, I think I've finished. Is there anything you'd like to add? And I thought that was the end of it. And I thought, wow, that was easy. And then the chief inspector sort of sits there and he goes, oh, you're in the Navy, aren't you? I was like, yeah. He said, so you're all on drugs, aren't you? And I'm like, and, and, I, and again, I knew exactly what he was going. He was baiting me. You know, he, he, he said, you know, I think a drink driver is worse than someone that goes and stabs someone in the stomach. And he just looks at me. And all and, and it was quite straightforward. It, he, he was just seeing that I had an opinion. I could put an argument across and stick to it. That's all he was doing. It, you know, and, and I said, so, no, I disagree with you, blah, 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 blah. And it was quite, I thought it was quite a simple interview, to be honest, because I, I'd worked that out. You know, he was trying to, he was trying to see if I, I reacted, you know, and, and of course, no, it, he just wants an argument. He wants to see whether or not you can stick to an argument, a reasoned argument. So, so training. Yeah. 20 weeks at Hendon. Um, what was the biggest challenge there? Or was it easy coming after coming from the military? No, it's quite difficult actually. Was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not in the way that you'd probably think though. Mm. I found it difficult because I felt we were getting treated like children. Ah. And I found that difficult. You had to be back in see at that time it was residential. It's not now. Twenty weeks residential at Hendon. They wanted you back for midnight. And I'm like, hang on a minute, like we're not school children, are we? You know, and we've got to be back in bed for midnight. Um, nah. This is just and and and, and the, just the the way people got spoken to. They tried to tell you that you can't use TVs in your room because the the building is wired up with a three amp ring main, and like you had electricians on that in that course, you know, ex electricians that are training to be could become police officers. And, and I'd done a little bit of electrical stuff, and I'm thinking three amp ring main. Well, what regulation would that ever pass? They were just it was an insult to your intelligence, and I struggle with that. If you treat me like an adult, then I haven't got a problem. But treat me like a child, and, and I struggled, and I very nearly left. I phoned up Jean, and I said to her, do you know what? I'm going to check this in and go back in the Navy. And she went, she just went quiet, and she said, uh, well, you know, if if that's really what you want to do, then then great. You know, that's what you've got to do. And I knew she wasn't happy, you know. So, you know, I I decided to stick it out. And and that was it. But I very I come very close to leaving. Did you have to do fitness stuff? Yeah, it wasn't overly arduous. You had to run a mile and a half in. I think it might have been twelve minutes. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, you had to do your run, and then there were gym tests and things you had to pass. Um, I can't remember exactly what they what they involved, but there was quite a lot of gym work. So it was quite fitness-based. You did log runs and things like that. You, they don't do any of that now. What was your first autopsy like? <laughs> um, yeah, back in the day, we used to go to autopsies. I don't think... Well, they don't. They, they're, they're not compulsory now. 
Um, I would advise it to anybody to go because if you can't deal with an autopsy, in my opinion, you can't deal with a job. But take, take us through that first one in detail then. Yeah, it was at Old Church Hospital when I because I was based at Havering at first. And uh we had an ex uh, army guy there. He, he what was he? Royal in a Royal in a skilling dragoon guards he was. And uh if you do an autopsy, basically at some point they're gonna cut the skull open with a circular saw. So was it an adult male or was it an adult? It, it was an adult male. Yeah, I can't remember for the life of me, cause of death or anything like that. But I found it, and I always have found them absolutely fascinating. If you've got a good, um, you, you've got a good person running the, doing the autopsy, they'll quite often point out things to you. Oh, if you look here, you can see the optic nerve joining the, the eyeball to the to the brain or whatever. But what they do, they cut the, they get a circular saw. They'll take the, they'll peel back the skin from the skull, and they'll get a circular saw, and they'll and they'll cut round the top of the skull, and they get a chisel and a hammer, and they pop the top of the skull off. Okay, but when it when he was about to do this, he said, "Does anyone want to go?" And I kid you not, this this squaddy, he went, "Yeah, I'll have a go." And he goes, "There you go, then, mate." And he gave him the the uh, the circular saw. It's a bit like a Dremel, really, right? He gave him this tool, and he put a face mask on and everything. And he was just about to get get stuck in, and the guy goes, "Now, second thoughts, you better not, because just in case you cut yourself." You wouldn't be insured. And that's the only reason he didn't do it. This guy, this police officer, he was well up for it. And I was like, blimey, they're a bit of a sicko, you know. <laughs> Seeing the body laid out, did it affect you? Nah, not really. Had you already seen things like that from the military? Uh, yeah, in the Gulf, we had we, we had a bit of a clear-up exercise. Those, those boats that I mentioned, the ships that got sunk in, you know, the, the bodies were washing around for three weeks in the water. And then at the end of it all, they... They had to be picked up. So you had to help retrieve those? I didn't. I didn't. But I saw people that were doing it, you know. And uh, they they were they were scooping them up with helicopters. They, they, they were picking up. The divers were going, or the, the air crewmen were going down, getting them around the arms, and they were lifting them up and leaving their legs behind, you know, and things like that. So in the end, they put nets on the helicopters to, to lift the bodies aboard, you know. And the raw, the people that really had the task of doing that were the Royal Marines bandsmen. We had Royal Marines bandsmen on board because their wartime role is like stretcher bearer and first aider, yeah? And they were doing that. And I remember one of their sergeants was, I, I remember the conversation. He said, I'm really proud of my lads. Not one of them threw up. And, you know, I'm thinking, oh, God, rather you than me. Because I was never keen on that sort of stuff. You know, I'd always, I was never like one of these people that like really enjoyed seeing gory stuff. It was part of the job on occasions, but I never enjoyed it. Because I was listening to a cop on a podcast on the way here, a Scottish woman, and she was talking about her first autopsy. Mm. Now she'll never forget it and an effect it had. And she she went home and called her mum, actually. Um, so you had none of that. You were just immune to any kind of. No, I, I wouldn't say I was immune to it. I think you. I think you have defence mechanisms, and the thing, the, the the worst thing with an autopsy is the smell. You know, so I think you just start breathing through your mouth. Probably not even a conscious thing. You just did go. It, oh, did, I don't want to. Did it give it. you anything to? Yeah, if you smell. want to pop Vic under your nose or whatever you can, or or have some mints or whatever, but. To be honest, when we did street duties or when I did street, instructed on street duties, it wasn't compulsory at that time for them to go to an autopsy. 
And some people turned up and they went, well, do you know what? I don't want to go in. But I would always advise them, if you can do it, do it. Because if you can't deal with that, you're not going to be an effective police officer. Because I came across worse things than that on the streets, you know. We'll get to them. There, there were worse things, sudden, some of the sudden deaths that you, you come across. And, you know, there, there are some horrendous things. So it's not it's not a, a job for the squeamish, really. And you have to have a coping mechanism to be able to to rationalise it. But I, I very rarely took the job home with me. I, I, it was like, I, as soon as my uniform went in the locker, I was out the door and it was forgotten, with one or two exceptions. With how, one or two exceptions. How many autopsies did you attend? Hope you're enjoying the podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Shady Rays. Check them out. Gear up for the season ahead with quality shades built to last. Our friends at Shady Rays have you covered with premium polarised shades and quick swap snow goggles that won't break the bank. Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company that offers an rival product that's just as good as any expensive pair we've worn. Durable frames and world-class optics for all outdoor adventures. And if you're into winter sports, the quick swap snow lenses move effortlessly between full sun to low light environments. And these shades hide a multitude of sins since having the little man. Shady Rays offers the most insane protection in all of eyewear. Every pair of sunglasses is backed by lost or broken replacements. If you lose or break your pair, even on day one, they told us they will send you a brand new pair, no questions asked. Were your Shady Rays with confidence because they have your back long after your purchase? If you don't love your Shady Rays, exchange for a new pair or return them for free within 30 days. There's no risk when you shop. The team always has your back with personal and fast support. Exclusively for our listeners, Shady Rays is giving out an amazing deal for the season. Go to ShadyRays.com and use code SEAN, S-H-A-U-N. For 50% off two plus pairs of polarized sunglasses, try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over a quarter million people. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. Back to the podcast. Cheers. Probably a dozen or so, I guess. A dozen? Probably, yeah. And in in those, did they, like, for example, would would a child have been? Well, on one occasion when we'd had street juices, we went in there and he had a full rack. You know, and, and the guy, this this was at Poplar Mortuary. The guy there, they used to call him Igor, the mortuary assistant, because he actually used to drag one leg. He was like something out of one, like carry on screaming. And he used to drag one leg, you know, and, and, and he used to he used to get the knife and he'd, he'd, he'd wave the knife in front of you like, and then he'd cut in and he loved it. You know, it was like a theatre to him. When he, when he had people there, he, it was like, it was like theatre. Whether he was doing that as an actor, well, I don't know, but or whether he was a little bit twisted, I really, I couldn't work in that environment as a day job. I just couldn't do it. Like when you're doing that day in day out, that's not for me. But I enjoyed it. It was educational, and you actually see how when you when you see the body cut open, you actually think, is that it? You know, because they take everything out, weigh it all, slice it up, have a look at it, put it all in a plastic bag stick it back in your chest and stitch it all up. And you think, well, there's not much there, really. It's just like going to the butcher's shop. Does that make you question mortality, then? I don't know, really. Uh, You know, you can go through life sort of worrying about being killed or you can just enjoy life and if it happens, it happens. You know, 
I, I don't know. I, I, I've never, I've never been sort of really scared of getting killed. That's not to say I want it to happen, but you can't go through life being fearful. So you go through your training. What's your first assignment? Blimey, first assignment. Which police station were you at? I was at Romford. So um, what year? Oh, I joined ninety. Yeah, it would have been ninety-one, 91. late ninety-one. Yeah, 91 so I'd have done Romford. my. Ten, I would have done my ten-week street duties, but Romford was probably it. Probably would have been a shoplifter. No, in actual fact, my first arrest was a drunk on street duties. It was a drunk. You know, it was a drunk. Um, Did he resist? Drunk and incapable. He... No, he was out of his. He <laughs> was Sparko, you know, and it was like, there you go, lad. There's your drunk, you know. But in 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 those days, you know, it was if you was a probationer, you was like a lot of officers treated you like as a third class citizen, you know, which I struggled with a little bit. But when I joined my team, my team were really good. They're all much more experienced than me. They all had like eleven, twelve years service, that sort of thing. Maybe a little bit more. My sergeant probably had twenty years service. But I think because I was ex-military, they didn't treat me like I was completely wet behind the ears you know whereas some of the guys and i did have a few basically as a probation you was expected to sit there shut up keep your ears open make the tea and do as you're told right that's that's the culture and and before i joined you even had within the canteen because they called it canteen culture yeah you had the advanced driver's table you had the van driver's table and if you wasn't an advanced driver, you couldn't sit at that table. If you wasn't a van driver, you couldn't sit at that table. And it was very, very sort of divisive, you know. And I had a few people who said, oh, probably make the tea, you know. And mm, yeah, I might, I might have took it once or twice, but I didn't take much crap off. And I remember having a row with a guy. Funnily enough, he used to be a West Ham footballer, but he wouldn't have been a very good one. <laughs> but very good friends with um, Harry Redknapp, apparently. I think they were, I think he was his best man at his wedding, but uh, he he ended up in the police, and I was very young in service. I probably had about two or three years, and this guy, I was at Hornchurch, and this guy, there was a call come out for Upminster, and 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 Upminster was generally like really old sweats that were on their just on their way to retirement. They were just one step away from walking out the door. And, and and they used to have like easy chairs, you know, and they'd be sitting there and quite often they'd fall asleep, you know, and the call was coming out and they're like, oh. and so I'm like, oh, they're probably all asleep. And this guy, I never knew him from Adam, right? He, he's just somebody milling around in the canteen when I was talking to my team. And he heard, and I said, oh, they're probably all asleep. And he, and he just said, who the bloody hell do you think you are? What sort of service have you got? Who, you know, you, you're just a sprog in the job. How dare you talk about your colleagues like that? And I turned around to him and I said, you ever talk to me like that again, I'll rip your head off and shit in your neck, right? And I only had about two years service. I was the sprog, right? And and that was like, you didn't do that, right? And everyone stood up like, Andy, Andy, calm down. I said, calm down, I'll knock his fucking head off, you know? I was livid, livid that somebody would talk to me like that for making a flippant remark, you know? And I wouldn't take that crap. And, and I just, and to this day, I won't take that. Did I'm, he back down? Yeah, he did. And I never spoke to the guy and he never spoke to me ever again. Never. Wow. But I, I, that, that's the way I'm wired, you know. I, 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 I'm a nice person, but if someone just, who doesn't know me wants to attack me, then I'm going to go for the jugular, you know. And this guy and my, these guys have got, that's the culture of the police. There's, there's a lot of bullies in the police, you know, a lot of bullies. 
And you, some of the nicest people you'll ever meet in your life are police officers. But some of the most horrible people you'll ever meet in your life are police officers. And there's there's not much in between, you know? There's There's people just come from different backgrounds. They join for different reasons. And some people are just bullies. And I don't have that. You know? Good. What was your first physical altercation? <sighs> Blimey. Do you know, I probably can't even remember. Is the one that you do remember that stands out? Oh, yeah. What was that? We one? had we had a hilarious... <laughs> we, we, we called it... This was at Limehouse, and we called it the Battle of Nelson. <laughs> the Battle of the Nelson. There's a pub on the bottom of the Isle of Dogs called Lord, Lord Nelson Pub, yeah? And uh, I was on the area car that day, uh, and we turned, we had a call to assist an officer that was trying to arrest someone. There was basically a family argument going off in this pub, yeah, about three o'clock in the afternoon. And these two guys, uh, they were like massive, just massive, and they were having a row with their kids, the daughters, yeah. And basically, the brothers were also having a row between the two of each other, the two of them. And one of them basically got arrested for what a minor public order, basically swearing at his, uh, his daughter. And he got arrested. By the time he got arrested, the other brother had just got in a minicab and was about to leave the scene. But he hadn't quite left. And he looked, I remember looking, seeing, he looked out the back of the window and he saw his brother getting arrested and he jumped out of the cab to go and help him, you know. So one minute they're arguing with each other, next minute, He's, he's going to come in on the side of his brother. And this guy, all I remember was a big roar as this guy just jumped into us, right? And he was like, I remember it. And he jumped into us and I literally got flung across Manchester Road. I landed in the middle of the road on my back. You know, I don't know how the distance. Well, Manchester Road is not a narrow road. It's quite a big road. And I landed on my back. And I've stood up and these two guys, they're like probably about six foot four you know, 20 stone, all, all like muscle, you know. Like and they're standing next to each other, right, and they're giving it, come on then, come on then. And this officer, uh, quite a big lad himself, he drew his asp, right, which is like your metal baton, yeah, extendable baton. And, it, and textbook style, he went down low for a low strike on, against across his knee, right, and he went down and he cracked this guy across the knee. This guy went down on one knee and then he stood back up again and chase the officer down the road. <laughs> so then when they got back together again, and they were they were standing next to each other, I sprayed them both with CS spray, right? And then that just made them more angry, right? So it see, CS spray was just hilarious, right? They, they Everyone billed it as like the best thing since sliced bread. Oh, it's great. This is going to protect officers, really good for officer safety. All it meant is that everyone got cross-contaminated and... And lots of people were resistant to it, yeah? And these guys were. They they just couldn't see who they were trying to hit now because they, they couldn't open their eyes, right? So one of them walked off into the pub and he and he and he went to uh to 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 wash his face or whatever he was doing. And the other one was um, you know, running around like a bear with a sore head. And we called for urgent assistance again, right? So everybody from all over, you had like TSG officers, you had dog handlers, you had traffic guys, you had all the local borough would turn up. And everyone's getting out of their cars into this big cloud of CS spray. So everybody's getting out of their cars, coughing, choking, runny eyes, and everyone's getting cross-contaminated. At this point, the girls come out of the pub and they started jumping on the backs of officers and trying to claw their eyes out and everything, you know. And um, 
I remember my sergeant, he turned up and he goes, right, where is this guy? And I said, he's gone in the pub, sergeant. I could hardly talk because I was coughing and spluttering. And he went, right, let's go and get him then. And I said, no, hang on, he's really big. <laughs> and so as he's walking towards the pub, this guy comes out to the doorway and he fills the door. And I just remember my sergeant, right? He was quite a big lad himself. He just stopped in his tracks. He just stops. And, and he just went, ah. In the end, it took six dog handlers and, a, and a, no, sorry, six TSG and a dog handler and a dog to get him on the floor and handcuffed. And I got a complaint that I'd hit him across the back while he was handcuffed, which I didn't do. You know, I got, I ended up with eight complaints out of that, as did most of the other officers there, ranging from assault to indecent assault on the daughters and everything, you know. And uh, yeah, it, it was quite an interesting one. The complaints went on for three and a half years Three and a half years we were under investigation for, for that. But it was it was it was it was absolutely hilarious. What was it the, really was? What was the outcome of the complaints? Uh, I nothing, no further action at all. But after three and a half years, it was quite unacceptable that it it went on that long. Particularly as about uh, about six months after that incident, there was a domestic between one of the brothers and his girlfriend. And I came in for an early turn, and this guy was nights, and he said, Andy, I've just been around that guy's house that you had a big, you know, that big incident with. And um, his, his girlfriend has said that she lied to complaints to back him up. Okay. And, I, and, and he had the presence of mind of saying, um, right, okay, well, are you prepared to give us a true statement of what happened? And he took a statement. She said, she sat down with him. He took a statement from her and it was like word perfect almost to what I had in my report. Yeah. So, so he said, I'll send that off to complaints. I went, hang on a minute. Let me have it first. So I photocopied it because I didn't trust complaints not to put it in the shredder. Right. So I took a photocopy and I took it home. Right. And I've probably still got it now somewhere. <laughs> I've still got, I think I've still got those complaints <sighs> and I took it home because I just had no trust in complaints at all. And it's still, and, and from that point onwards, it went on for another three years, even though she'd admitted lying. But that's Bureaucracy. that's complaints for you. Who's Brian Stedman? Brian Stedman, he's probably the uh, he's the only guy I've arrested for murder. He's the only guy I've arrested for murder. Um, it's probably not a common thing to for a response officer to arrest mur- people for murder, and I got warned for. I got warned, a very young in service, I was at Hornchurch, and I got warned for a trial at the Old Bailey for that. And so basically, he's a guy that, that attacked his wife, I think it was like 13 times over the head with a hammer, claw hammer. So basically, it was on Sunday, we were driving around Hornchurch on patrol, quite a quiet day really, not much happening at all. And then all of a sudden, we had this call that... Uh, yeah, a male was phoned up police saying he's killed his wife. And we're like, okay, great. So everyone's like, yeah, we'll have that. So we go into the address, but there was a, there was an address in, in Romford where his wife was, but then he'd gone to his, uh, I think it was his uh, daughter's address or something. And we met him now. And he'd come to the door, called as a cucumber, spattered in blood all over him. So I never went to the scene. Because obviously, you if you if you have dealings with the suspect, you don't go to the scene or vice versa because you get cross contamination of evidence, 
and then the forensics is 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 valueless. It's they'll just say, well, you, you the reason he's got fibres on him is because you went to the scene and then you arrested him. So you got to be very wary of that. And I was, and I, and and we even put sentries on the custody, and we and made sure that nobody that went to that scene went into that police station, Romford Police Station, because technically speaking. You know, if anyone had been to the scene, then came into custody, they they could argue at court that those fibres got transferred. So, yeah, we did it really professionally. I was very young in service, and I'm the one that's, like, controlling all this. And I thought, well, you know, this is this is quite good. You know, I was really excited about this because this, this is a guy for murder, you know what I mean? And, uh, yeah, I got one for court, and I'm like, yeah, brilliant, you know, uh, old Bailey trial, murder, arresting officer. Yeah, don't get much better than this. I've probably had three or four years' service. What was his demeanour like when you saw him Co- covered call in blood? Call us cucumber. Was he? Call us a cucumber. It was like he'd been arrested for a breach of the peace, you know? And because I was there when the SOCO, the scenes of crime officer, was taking his uh, swabs from his fingernails and everything and seizing his clothing and packaging it all up. And he was sitting there... Like, like it was just an everyday event, okay? And this is the crux of all, of all this, really, because he later claimed, and the CPS accepted, his plea of manslaughter due to diminished responsibility. Now, I'm no, you know, expert, but I don't think somebody who's just smashed their wife over the head 13 times with a hammer, In you know, most people, I think, once they realise the gravity of what they've done, are going to be distraught, absolutely distraught. I would have thought most people would go to pieces, but this guy didn't. He was cool as a cucumber. So, yeah, I later got dewarned for the, for the trial because they accepted his plea. And he was sentenced to three years in prison and he served 18 months. What? Absolutely. What? Absolutely. And that's when I realised that I joined... A theatre group, yeah? The whole of the justice system is a theatre, you know? There is no justice. Um, Brian Steadman is cited by domestic violence groups to this day. You know, if you if you Google him, you'll, you'll see quite a lot on him. He would have been up for the death penalty in Arizona. Yeah, quite rightly so. Apparently, his excuse was that he was asking his wife for money and she used to nag him about money um and that was his justification and and there was no way that that was manslaughter because the guy didn't care a jot about what he'd done he was cool as a cucumber it was like he was always getting arrested and he'd been arrested for you know drink drive even drink drivers i've seen drink drivers more panicky than him because they look at it and go, oh my god i'm gonna lose my job or whatever you know he was absolutely like talking to you Wow. Yeah. So did things change when the Twin Towers were attacked? Yeah, they did a little bit. We had It was a little bit strange because a lot of people say that, you know, and I'm not here to bash any sec- section of the community, okay? I'm just here to say it as I saw it. And I worked in Tower Hamlets. Tower Hamlets is a predominantly sort of Bengali sort of community, yeah? And certain members of the community would distance themselves from Osama bin Laden or, or or what what happened, you know, or what is alleged to have happened. I keep an open mind on what happened, all right? But at the time, I went with the narrative, yeah? Um, but all I, I remember being night duty 
and we were driving around some of these estates and there were people all over the place standing on balconies shouting Osama bin Laden Osama bin Laden and it made me realize that hmm, maybe this guy is has got more support than than the media are making out yeah and I also remember a governor, an inspector. There was an incident with a, an American doctor who lived in uh, Wapping, and he raised the US uh, Stars and Stripes um, at his surgery. Um, I think he was American. I might be wrong on that. But anyway, a doctor raised the Stars and Stripes at this surgery. And obviously Wapping and that, that that area, it's predominantly Bengali. And there was a call on it because the local community complained about this Stars and Stripes being flown. And I remember the inspector saying, well, right, okay, I want someone to go down to that address and I want somebody to tell him, take it down, otherwise he's going to get arrested. And I thought to myself, hang on a minute. Like, what, what what's he going to get arrested for? Like, because I'm not going to be arresting him for anything. Like, you want him arrested, you do it yourself. Because that's another thing I was quite hot on. I wouldn't be told to arrest anybody by anybody. If I if I felt they needed arresting, then I got arrested. But if I thought that it wasn't justified, it never happened, it would be like, well, over to you then. You can do that. Because I'm thinking, well, if anyone's kicking off, the community are kicking off, they're the ones that are causing the breach of the peace. Not him. He's, he's entitled to fly and express solidarity for... America, as far as I'm concerned, and it wasn't going to happen by me. But I was that 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 sort of popped me on the back foot a little bit, you know. And I'm thinking, hang on, what's going on here? That was the first my first experience of real woke policing, and that was well, when was that? That was 2001, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. That was probably my first experience of it. What was the situation with the homemade firearm? Oh yeah, another interesting one again down on the Isle of Dogs. Um, yeah. Colleagues of mine had stopped a car going through the AMPR, the automatic number plate readers. Um, they were quite new then. Because of the bombing that had happened at Canary Wharf, they, are, they were probably the first places to have AMPR. Um, anyway, it went through and it was a, um, I think it was an over-hire car. Like been hired, but hadn't been taken back to the hire company. Anyway, stopped it and one thing led to another. The guy was disqualified and drunk and god knows what else and he gets arrested cut a long story short we did a what's what's called a section 18 search or a search at his address and while we was at the address we found more drugs and stuff like that but then we found this little tube right and we're looking at him we're going, what's this tube like what is this and and it had a little lever outside yeah and a little slot and uh in the cold light of day i'd never seen a homemade firearm i'd never seen any circulars about homemade firearms or anything at that point and we're looking at it and we're going what is this thing hang on hang on and we're all looking down it and everything you know passing it around what do you think this is oh i don't know you know and then we continued searching and we found a a silencer right and we looked at the thread on the silencer and we looked at the end of this little tube and we went and it screwed together. And we was like, hang on a minute. And then we looked at this thing more, more closely and we could see that there was a like a cap on the end that you could unscrew. So we unscrew this cap and there's a 2-2 two, two round sitting in there. And if any one of us had flicked that lever, we would have shot ourselves through the eyeball. You know, while we were looking at it. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, and I'd never seen anything like it at that time. And I haven't seen anything since. I've never, I've never come across. That's the only one I ever came across. But basically, I used to put them up their sleeve 
and just pop people at close range in nightclubs and things like that, you know, in the street. So would he be like a hitman then? I'd be used by a hitman. Yeah, that's that's exactly what... We had it tested. We had it tested to see whether it had been involved in any crimes, but it, it didn't come back as a an identification for anything. And I think these people were loosely linked to uh, an attempted murder or something like that, or firearms offences. I think it was an attempted murder. I can't remember exactly what the circumstances were. So that weapon was tested... But unfortunately, it never came back with a positive ID or as being involved in anything. So how serious a crime is that? Because for the American viewers, well, you know, there's a lot of guns out there. Yeah. In the UK, it's a lot different, isn't it? How yeah. what, what kind of pr- um, prison time would that guy face or what would he be charged with? Well, he'd be charged with um, probably possession of a firearm or prohibited weapon, I would suggest. Um Prison time, I don't know, in this day and age. Back then, he might have... I can't remember what the... I think there was a mandatory sentencing back then for firearms. And I think it was five years. I might be wrong. I might be wrong. But I think it was five years mandatory sentencing for for an unlawful firearm. But, um, yeah, what he would have actually faced, like what do you get for clubbing your wife 13 times over the head with a hammer? You'd expect more than three years, wouldn't you? Preposterous. So what would you get for it? I don't know. It depends what's, what side of bed the judge got out of that what, day. What you had for breakfast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, and it, this is the thing. There's so many variables in, 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 in the law. And, you know, one person can go to one court and get hammered. Another person can go to another court and get a slap on the wrist. But, yeah, I, I just sort of... That, that was really unnerving, that, because we had come so close to shooting ourselves. Wow. You know. This is going to be brutal then. A guy who committed Harry Carey. Yeah, again on the Isle of Dogs. It's all happening on the Isle of Dogs. Um, I can't remember what the call was, but we went to this guy's house and as we came through the door, he was standing there with a kitchen knife and he was like, don't come any further, don't come any further. And we're like, okay, mate, don't worry. What's, what's the problem? And try Because 90% of the job's talking, really. And he's standing there. And he's got this knife, and he's holding the handle. And we're saying, okay, put the knife down. Let's talk about it. You know, what's, what's the problem? And he just went, woof, and just plunged it up to the handle into his stomach. Yeah? And then I think he wanted to do the full, yeah? But he realized that it hurt. And then after, after he plunged it up to the handle, I think he'd had enough. And he was like, oh, my God, it hurts. And we're like, yeah, no shit, mate, you know. Okay. And, and of course, then it's a case of, like, you don't want him pulling the knife out because you can cause more damage taking the knife out. So we're like, okay, just leave it there. We'll get an ambulance for you. And and that was the end of it. He got carted off to hospital. And in those days, right, in those days, that was pretty much the end of it, really. But now that would have been a crime scene. There would have been officers there. It would have been forensically investig- uh, examined and God knows what, you know, crime scene logs, everything in case he died. But in those days, this was pre sort of probably pre, uh, what would you call it? McPherson report, you know, when duty officers weren't running scared. See, after the McPherson report, the police just became very scared. And that was the start of the rot. As, as policing, you know. So are you trained then that if someone has a knife in them, you have to leave it in and get them medical people? Basi- yeah, basically, um, if, you, if you've if got a knife stuck in you, the training was always to leave it there. 
because you can cause more and more damage taking the knife out. You might have put the knife in and it might have just missed a major artery, but if you then pull it back out, you might sever the artery. You know, so basically once it was in, you left it in. Did you come across people who'd made that mistake of they'd been stabbed and they pulled it out and done worse harm? No, well, not not specifically, no. I come across quite a lot of people that have been stabbed. And, and as far as I was concerned, it was a stab injury. But whether or not they'd been stabbed and pulled the knife out afterwards, I don't know. You know, I purposely pulled it out, I don't know. What was the worst stabbing case you came across? Worst stabbing case... I don't know. I come across a lot. Um, the worst one. Don't know. Nothing. Nothing really springs to mind. Um, Is it a lot because of it was so common. It was so common that people were getting stabbed. I remember one guy. We, we middle of the night again on the Isle of Dogs. Again on the Isle of Dogs. Driving past in the van, middle of the night, say two in the morning. Not a soul around. Not a soul. We turned, went into an estate, patrolled for about five minutes around this particular estate. And as we came back out onto the main road where we'd just been driven down, everybody was out. There was like 50 people out in the street and a guy was laying there and he'd been stabbed. And he was bleeding out. And, oh, I I will come to the worst one. I will, I've remembered. But this guy was bleeding out. And... um, Basically died in front of us. And that's the only time I had someone die in front of me. You know, normally they get off to hospital. Um, so was he still breathing and talking when you got there? Is that how you know? He wasn't talking, but he, he, was still, he was still alive. But he basically got an ambulance there and they were working on him and he died there and then, you know, in, in the street. Um, but where all these people came from, that was a bizarre thing. There was not a soul around. And within five minutes, there's... All these people out in the road, standing around this guy that's been stabbed, butchered, in 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 the road, and you're like, well, and I can't see. The thing is with response work, see CID and stuff like that, they'd they'd probably get more into the circumstances in their in in the cold light of day, you know, over the course of weeks. We haven't got that time. We've got this is the incident we deal with. We deal with it there and then, hand it over to CID, and we move on, you know. So we don't really get to know what it was about, why he got stabbed, who he got stabbed by. And to be honest with you, you're so busy, you haven't got really time to follow it up because it's such a regular occurrence. So the the wider story on response policing, you don't often get to know about, you know. But the worst one I come across was a guy that had his throat cut. Um, Again, middle of the night, at Limehouse again, but this was in... um, this was in Stepney, block of flats. Can you go there? The guy's cut himself. We've had a call from a neighbour. The guy's cut himself. There isn't an ambulance to attend and he needs first aid. So we're like, okay, yeah, great. So we're going across a junction and I've put the blues and twos on, right? And the control room said, heard the, we asked for the address again and the control room heard the blues and twos. And they said, oh, just let you know, it's not in a hurry up. It's just as and when. And we're like, oh, okay. So we're thinking, like, the guy's cut his finger or something, you know. So anyway, we turn up at the, this block of flats, and we, we get the first aid kit out of the car. We go in through the, up to the main doors, and as we open the main doors, we're just like, oh, my God. There's just this blood all over the communal areas, right? 
and it, the blood trail leads from a flat on the ground floor all over the communal areas, all the way up the stairs to the first floor landing. And this guy is laying on the first floor landing with two old ladies, like one at opposite ends with their doors open, just looking at him, going, there he is, officer. And this guy has got a towel around his neck that they've given him or put around his neck, yeah? He's not conscious, all right, at this point. And I thought, right, okay, let's have a look at what's gone on. So I've taken this towel off and he's been cut from ear to ear, right? And there's just just a hole in his neck, yeah? And this blood, I don't know if you've ever seen like this like blood, but it goes, it goes like, you know, when you get a piece of liver and you, or you cook a piece of steak and you get that like thick sort of snotty sort of gooey stuff. Do you know what I mean? Well, you, the blood congeals, right? And it becomes like a, like a jelly and it's, it was everywhere and you're slipping in it and you're, and you're sliding around in it. And of course I called a control room and I, my first aid training does not, extend to a guy that's had his throat cut from ear to ear right it, it probably across his jugular vein as well right and and i called a controller and said look we need an ambulance they, they they keep telling me there is no ambulance and basically I, I, I lose pretty much lost my temper really i said look i need an ambulance now otherwise this guy is going to die and he could probably hear what i was saying to be honest because one of the last sense senses you lose is your hearing isn't it in hindsight, I probably shouldn't have said it so abruptly in front of him, but I but I did, and I said, "Look, this guy is going to die. I need an ambulance now. I don't care where you get it from. Just get me an ambulance." And this was straight after Stephen Lawrence, after the McPherson report, yeah. So, and the guy was black, right? And I'm thinking this is going to be the next Stephen Lawrence, and they're going to look at me and go, well, "What first aid did you do on him?" And I and I have I'm not a paramedic, you know. I haven't got that level of first aid training and even if i had where do i get the blood from because i had never seen so much blood in my life you know i reckon you've got eight pints of blood but if i had to hazard a guess there was 20 gallons of it you know it was it was all it was everywhere it was and, and we even followed it down into his flat we went into the, and it was all over the flat as well in his front room so i reckon he'd taken I, I, and again i don't know he took a knock on the door and someone's just gone at his doorstep He's probably run around the, the flat like a headless chicken and then thought, oh, my God, and he's gone knocked upstairs. Just like that. But this is the crux of it. The guy, the guy lived. Wow. The guy lived. The ambulance came. The ambulance came, right? The paramedics, I went to hospital, to Royal London Hospital, which is probably the best hospital you can go to if you're in a really bad way in London because of the, the trauma that they do. They, they've got the air ambulance lands at... Royal London Hospital. So they deal with trauma from all over London, yeah? Their 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 trauma expertise is probably second to none. Yeah, they're probably in the country. And on the en route with the to, to the hospital in the ambulance, the paramedics are like, right, no hope. No hope. Eight o'clock that morning, he is sitting up in bed and I'm talking no to him. No way. No, I kid you not. He <gasps> lived. And did he tell you what happened? Nope. Because now we go back to the fact of I'm now on, you know, I, I'm I'm going home. I'm off nights. You, you, this is how it works, right? It's quite mercenary, right? You've dealt with this, and the guy's injured. You know, he's he's not really talking because he's got, a, yeah. But he's a, he's alive, and he and he's sort of talking like mumbling. But he's not, you're not talking about anything in depth. You know, he's just alive, and you know he can say his name. What's your name, mate? And but you're not 
All you're interested in is going home and having some sleep. That's the truth of the matter. You just want to go home and go to sleep because you're knackered. Because <laughs> you know you've got to go back and do it all again the following night. You know? So, and I regret that, right? I regret that. When I look back at the job, I wish I'd taken more time and spoken to people. Like John Wedger was talking about how he sat down with people and he and he got information from them and he, and he wanted to know their story. What's, what sort of childhood did you have? And for him, it was probably really relevant, you know, the, the type of work he was doing. But he recognised that he could get a lot of information from these people, whereas most police officers are like, yeah, whatever, you know, da, da, da. And, and I'm probably a little bit guilty of that, right? And I wish now I'd sat down with more with people because do you know what? The only difference between them and me is circumstance, right? I I wasn't born into a, you know, a horrible estate with an alcoholic mum and, and, and a, you know, a drunk dad or whatever, a wife-beating dad. You know, I wasn't born into those circumstances. But had I been, I'm that might have been me, you know? And I didn't really sort of quite, Police officers are quite mercenary. They're just go to work, do the job, go home. And you have to be to a degree because it's a defence mechanism. But afterwards, I thought more deeply about it. And I thought, well, I missed an opportunity to find more, dig deeper into people. You know? <sighs> what a situation. Yeah. So did the dozen autopsies break you in for the sudden deaths? And how many sudden deaths were there? Oh, blimey. It's, it's another thing. You lose count. I, I would say that I only do... Generally, sudden deaths are... People for the people that get lumbered with sudden death deaths are the younger serving officers generally. When you get a bit more service, you don't generally get lumbered with sudden deaths because they just go, oh, they know what they're doing. They don't need to do it. It's more of a learning experience for younger officers. So when you get to a certain level of service, your sudden deaths peter out a little bit. But I probably dealt with, I don't know, if I had to hazard a guess, 25, I guess. If I had to hazard a guess, yeah. But some of them were really grim. I went to a hanging and the guy was sort of decomposing on the end of the noose. How long had he been there? Probably about three or four days, I guess. That's got to be worse than any autopsy then. Yeah, he, he was, yeah, exactly. Flies, maggots, that kind of thing. Yeah, and I went to another guy who had died on the sofa and he had expanded like Michelin Man. He'd only been there about six, seven days. Speaking to neighbours, oh yeah, we saw him last Sunday or whatever. So we could narrow it down to a timeline. But he had exploded like Michelin Man. I thought the guy was black, but he was white because he'd gone completely black. He had these huge blisters over him. Huge blisters. He had maggots coming out of his mouth. Uh, His face was all decomposing, you know. And the smell was off the scale. And I, I remember we were standing outside waiting for the undertaker's. And the smell was wafting out through the fan light. And I was like, oh, this is just gross. This is not much pots me off my food. But that was that 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 stopped me wanting to eat my food later, you know. But when the undertakers arrived, they were they were actually one of them was sick. And that's rare. That's rare. Because when they put him into the body bag, he popped. Oh, you know? So, yeah, that, that's a rarity for the undertakers because they deal with that day in, day out, you know. And we were worried that he was going to pop while we were there. But you've got to remember, you, in that, like, really and truly, we should, have been, we should have had respirators, we should have had goggles, we should have had white suits and everything, right? Because that guy was absolutely minging. Like, I don't even want to know what we were breathing in, right? 
what type of particles we were breathing in. And this was part of the job, right? I don't know what, whether they do use PPE now. I'd like to think they do because that got ingrained into your uniform, right? Ingrained. And sometimes you could just smell it a day, two days later. You, it just came back to you. And you were just like, oh, God, I can smell that sudden death again, you know? think that corpse even would have rattled Igor. Yeah, it was grim. It was grim. That's that. That's the worst, without a shadow of a doubt. So what is that? Is it the body's internal gases? Yeah, the, yeah, it all putrefies, and, 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 and the skin starts to sort of, I guess, sort of delaminate, and it gets filled with this putrid fluid, and it, you just expand, you know? It happens to a lot of people in water when they go into water. Yeah. Because what happens is quite often people jump in the Thames, you know. And see, people jump into the Thames and they think, oh, it's great. It's all water. But the problem is what they're not thinking about, it's low tide. And at the bottom of that water is mud. So they jump into the water and then into the mud up to their waist and they don't float back up again. And they're stuck in the mud, drowning. Yeah. But then after a couple of days, the all the gases and and they 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 sort of float free and then they get found like three miles down the wall down the down the river you know how often do people throw themselves in the thames it's quite a common thing is it well whether they throw themselves in the thames or whether they fall in the thames or drunk or fall off bridges or whatever um yeah it's it's a common thing yeah a lot of people die in the river wow. a lot of people so you know to arrive at a sudden death of an adult is one thing but what are sudden deaths of kids yeah, I'm really fortunate, really fortunate. I never dealt with directly with dead children. And I, and I absolutely, I, I, I'm really pleased about that. The only one I ever dealt with was in traffic and it was a, a young baby was in a car and it, it was crying, I think, in the car and they undid its belt, picked it up to pacify it but that happened to coincide with the time it had a head-on collision oh and the baby God. was killed. Oh. I arrived at the scene, I went to the scene, but I wasn't having any hands on it dealing with the actual case itself. So I'm really pleased. I, 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 you know, I take my hat off to anybody that has to deal with that because that's shocking, you know. Parents' worst nightmare, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, Good definitely. Grief. Yeah. So why did you transfer to traffic? Well, at the time, I was like, I've done like 12 years response work, okay, on response teams. And I've probably pretty much seen it, done it, and got the T-shirt at that time, you know. And I, and I wanted to sort of progress. And I thought to myself, I fancy going into a special escort group, you know. They're the people that escort the royal family around on motorbikes and Category A prisoners and that sort of stuff, you know. And uh, and there's a lot of courses to be had from that. You get a firearms course, although... Later on, I decided I'd never want to carry a gun for the job. But at that point, I was like, yeah, I, I fancy that. So you had to you had to be a, an advanced driver. You had to be a motorcyclist, police motorcyclist, and various other things, you know. So I thought to myself, well, the, quick, the easiest way to get those skills is to go into traffic. So traffic was always seen as a stepping stone in a special escort group. So, um, yeah, so I went into traffic and... and Got to be honest, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Like anything, it becomes political after a while. And um, I had a bit of a falling out with the governor over it, and I ended up leaving. Um, See, so in traffic, it's quite unusual. You compared to like most places, you have a 
you, you quite often have a working partner where you work with the same guy, a bit like Starsky and Hutch. You, know? <laughs> you have the same guy that you're working Police with. Police chasers. Yeah, you're working with the same guy all the time, you know. So I used to work with this guy, Jim, who was ex-Essex, funnily enough. And um, we we had a set to with the governor one day because, um, yeah, we it was night duty. We was at uh, Newham and uh, he'd had a no insurance seizure, the governor, and he's out on his own. So he's got this car with no insurance in this horrible estate and he needs someone to drive it in. So we went to assist him. So I, we, we've gone up. My, my, my mate, Jim, who's the operator, he's jumped out, got in the car and driven it to the pound. Yeah. So we've done that. It's now three o'clock in the morning. We've not had anything to eat. So we went into the motorway control room at, or the tunnel control room at Blackwall Tunnel. and we were, we were having something to eat. Earlier on that shift, there'd been a police chase in Dagnum with a, another traffic car. And this guy had lost it on a bend and rolled and one of the guys had been killed. So they call it a vicinity-only pole coal police collision, yeah, vicinity-only. So that was being dealt with. We was aware that was going on in the background, but we weren't involved. While we was having our grub, having our refs, yeah, uh, that's what you call it in the job, refreshments, yeah, refs. The guy in the control room, he said, oh, well, the governor wants you to put a closure in for this uh, thing at Dagenham. Um, yeah, yeah, we'll go now. And he said, no, 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 it's not on the hurry up. It's not on the hurry up. Go, have your, fin- have your food and then make your way down. So as we we're making our way down the A13, it's a 40, 40, 50 mile an hour limit along there. So we're bimbling along because it's not on the hurry up, yeah? And this guy comes off the A406 in this car and he goes lane one to lane three, lane three to lane, two, uh, lane one. And as he's going across lane two, he nearly rear ends a car and he goes up a slip road. So we go, we'll have a word with him. So we stop him. The guy falls out of the car drunk. He's um, he's disqualified from driving. He's a day out of prison, yeah, and and it's not his car. Well, what are you going to do? Well, the guy's getting arrested, right, all day long. Right, all day long, his guy's getting arrested. So we arrest this guy. We take him into, I think it was Barking Police Station or Dagenham Police Station, and we called up our, our skipper, our sergeant, and we said to him, oh, can you... Uh, can you just let us know? Can you just let the governor know? We're not going to be able to put that road closure in. We've got an arrest. And the governor calls up on the radio and he goes, I'll talk to you two later. And we're like, hmm, sounds like he's got the ump. So we private call the sergeant because you had the facility a private call. And we say, look, can you just explain to him what's happened here? Like, we're, we're not trying to, you know, get out of putting his road closure in, but this is what's happened. And this guy needs arresting. Yeah, yeah, no, no worry, lads. Uh, you crack on. I'll, I'll have a word with him. Thought that was the end of it. So we finished with the arrest. It's now about seven o'clock in the morning. We're, we're due to go home, yeah? And we called him up. We said, like, do you want us to come to the scene or do you want us to go home? And he goes, I'll go home, lads. It's all right. See you tonight. So off we go. Next night, we come into work and we're listening to the, the stories from the guy that was involved in this vicinity only. And, like, no intimation that there's any problems. Two o'clock in the morning... The governor calls us up. Can I meet you at Choates Road uh, down in Dagnum? So we get down to Dagnum and the governor gets out of the car and he says, I want to know why you didn't turn up at this uh, this road closure yesterday. And the sergeant that we'd spoken to, he's standing right next to him. And we look at him and go, did you not tell him, Sarge? And he went, shrugged his shoulders like that. 
And this, this governor starts going, well, I want to know, why didn't you turn up? And I said, I'll tell you what happened. We was driving down the road and this car did this, that and the other. And he fell out of the car. He was drunk. He was disqualified from driving. It wasn't his car. You know, he's got arrested. And I tell you now, if I was confronted with the same situation, I'd do exactly the same thing. I'm not going to apologise to you or anybody else for doing my job. If you've got a problem with it, it's your problem, right? It's your problem, not mine. And I, and I, I take umbrage at the fact that we're having this conversation. And if you want to make something of it, then feel free, right? Because I weren't having that, right? Anyway, he went, oh, I'm sorry, lads. You know, I've had a bit of a, a, bit of a tough time. And I had a lot of respect for this governor. And he was very well respected. But at that point, I was like, do you know what? I'm done with traffic. So I got in the car and I said to my, my mate Jim, I said, I'll tell you what, Jim, my targets for this year are getting the hell out of traffic. And he went, yeah, mate, you're right. So I ended up transferring out of traffic and so did he. He went to Diplomatic Protection Group and he got embroiled in the Plebgate scandal and uh, lost his job. You know? And I was thinking of going there at the same time. And I'm glad I didn't. How long were you in traffic for? Six years. What was the craziest chases you got in? Well, I'll tell you now, I, I took it very seriously, that side of things, right? Because they are absolutely deadly. And I didn't have a lot of time for officers that had this gung-ho attitude of, you know, chases are great. I just looked at them as a job loser. When they go wrong, you're going to be scrutinised. And if you've done wrong, you're going to be, you're going to be prosecuted and you're going to lose your job, and you're potentially going to end up in prison, right? So I took it very seriously. I'll tell you that now. And my driving record was impeccable. I, I never had a point. We used to have a police driving record. So you had your, 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 your DVLA driving license, but you also had a, a police driving permit, okay? And if you had little knocks and scrapes in the car, like say you reversed in the yard and you bashed into a post, they'd come out and go, oh, well, you should have seen that post, have a point, you know? Well, I never, in all my driving career, had a point on my license against me, right? So I wasn't one to go seeking out ridiculous police chases. However, <laughs> however, <laughs> it was actually the last chase I ever had, actually. And um, this, oh, there was a couple, actually. I will, I will go back to a crazy one, but this one was quite interesting. It was down the A13, Newham, and the guy... Guy was being chased from one of the outer boroughs. And you, we was a Stinger-equipped car, right? So we were Stinger-trained. So you know Stinger. It's like the thing they put across the road with the spikes and it deflates the tyres, yeah? But the thing is with Stinger, you've got to preempt where that car's going to go, right? So it's, it's, like, it's like witchcraft. You've got to work out, where's this guy going to go? And I went, I reckon he's going to go Canning Town flyover and I reckon he'll go off down the slip road, right? And that's exactly what he did do, Right? But as I was getting the stinger out of the boot, I was getting my gloves on because they're really sharp, right? And I'm getting it out. The, he went past. I oh. missed him. So I was like, no, because you get a little hedgehog badge if you sting a car. You, you, it's like, <laughs> you get a little hedge, hedgehog badge you can have, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I missed him, right? So anyway, we got back in the car, a bit Keystone Cops, and we're chasing this guy all around Canning Town. And this guy, I kid you not, he turned left, went up the pavement, and he went down an alleyway, down a flight of steps. Right, this alleyway was just wide enough for one car, right? Like it was a it was a walkway. I think it went down the side of a cemetery or something, right? And he went down a flight of steps, boom, 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 boom down the alleyway. And we said, right, let's get the other side of the alleyway, because we can't follow him. Let's get to the other side of the alleyway. I reckon he'll be there with four deflated tires, right? Or the car will be. No sign of it. Bloke went, he'd gone. But 
it was like Italian job. It was like the Italian job. So that's probably, that's the last chase I had. Did you ever find out what he was on the run for? No. No. I probably knew at the time. I would have known at the time, but I can't remember. I would have known. They would have said. I wouldn't have. We wouldn't be chasing a car if we didn't know what they were being chased for. I honestly just can't remember. But the maddest chase I ever saw was when I was really young in service at Romford. I was a probationer. And I was out in the area car. I was operator on the area car, which was really, really rare in those days for probationers to be on the area car. They normally wanted people with two years' experience or more, but I'm probably like six months in the job. And I've got a month on the area car with this area car driver who's got a bit of a reputation for being a bit, bit, bit unhinged. If if I'm honest, bit unhinged. Yeah, uh, yeah, bit unhinged. Anyway. This this guy had taken an iron bar to a police officer in Essex. And so if you can imagine, there's a road that runs through from Essex into London called the A12, the A127, the A12. This, this car's coming from Essex into London. The first borough that you're going to come to as you go into London is Havering, where we were. So we're down at the Gallows Corner roundabout. And as we get there, these cars go past. There's the bandit car, followed by like, boom, 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 loads of Essex cars, yeah? So we're in on it. We should be the lead car now because they're not in Essex anymore. They're now in the Met, yeah? So we were we were the lead car. As you go from, from Romford, you'll go into Barkingside. So you get a Barkingside area car. And then you go into Ilford, you'll get the Ilford area car. And then you go into Newham, you'll get the Newham area car. Right, so you was building up all these area cars chasing this thing. And this guy was doing red lights at 120 mile an hour. Whoa. He was doing red lights at 120 mile an hour, right? absolute madness and we were we're actually on the a127 and they were trying to do like a t-pack but t-pack wasn't a thing then no one was t-pack trained right what does that mean t-pack is where you basically get police cars positioning themselves around the bandit car and they bring it to a controlled stop yeah and that's what they're trying to do but no one had the training to do it then it was just a bit more keystone cops and and in this day and age this wouldn't happen because they're mu- and quite rightly they're much better controlled but in those days it was a bit of a free for all and it was seemed as a bit of a thing that everyone wanted to get into well, that's a chase brilliant let's get there you know and um yeah this this guy eventually crashed at uh, whips cross and he went he, he went off the road and you know between two trees and then the dog handlers get up and all you heard was oi ah 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 as he's getting detained you know but I looked down the road and it was a sea of blue lights a sea of blue lights there's probably like 30 police cars there so that's probably the maddest police chase so if a guy's going 120 through a red light does the cop car behind him just go through the red light too no you've you've got to slow you've got to slow but it all depends on the vision you've got you know, if you've got vision left and right into that junction, you know, I would still suggest 120, you're never going to get away with it. It all goes wrong. They're gonna, you are going to be hammered, right? But that's not to say that it didn't happen, right? But I would never do it. But back in those days, it was more red. I think there was a lot, there was more, there's a thing called red mist, right? There's red mist. There's, there's a famous police pursuit and they, they play you the tape. I think they play you the tape. It's either they play you the tape, they certainly talk about the case, and I think they play the tape of a chase in West London. And when you go on advance course and you become a pursuit driver, they, they, they talk about red mist. And there's this famous case where this guy is driving the police car and the operator is just screaming over the radio, 
get him to stop or words to that effect get him to stop stop oh my god you know and anyway that car crashed and that guy died police officer died uh, the, the the operator the radio operator died so nowadays if any person wants to call that chase off it gets called off so if the operator wants to call that chase off he can terminate that pursuit if someone in the control room thinks that it's dangerous they can terminate that pursuit the problem with that comes that the operator might not even possess a driving license that alone have gone on an advanced driving course the guy in the control room likewise might not even possess a driving license maybe not even about to ride a bicycle and yet they can go oh that's dangerous they're doing 35 in a 30 that's dangerous terminate it but of course that advanced driver has if you're good and you know what you're doing i'm not saying that not not all advanced drivers are born equal they've all passed a very tough course some of them take the responsibility very seriously and i would suggest most of them do now but back in the day a few probably didn't yeah so <clears throat> you know that advanced driver's gone through a lot of training and, and, and been scrutinised and been taught to drive at high speed. So what's dangerous in the views of a novice is not necessarily dangerous in the eyes of an advanced driver, you know. And that's the problem now, is that a lot of pursuits get terminated by the control room because, oh, my God, they're doing 45 in a, on a, in a 40. Terminate. So what about the problem of you're driving fast after somebody? Mm. London's always so crazy and busy. Like... A kid walks out or a bicyclist comes out. I mean, there's no way to calculate that, is there? Isn't it just a, like a random event? This is where observations come in. And, 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 and see, an advanced course is not all about going fast. It's about safe, appropriate speed, right? And in, in a lot of circumstances, an advanced driver will actually drive slower than a less highly trained driver because they're seeing the hazards, right? So it's always about driving at an appropriate speed. And, and that's where observations come in right it's observing you know and, and and you are trained to observe and 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 when you do these courses you have to do what they call a commentary so you are talking about everything you are seeing everything you're thinking your thought process on everything is being scrutinized and you have to talk as you drive about what you're seeing why you're doing this what what why you're traveling at this speed why you're in that gear why you're in this position etc etc and what you're seeing and if you're not tallying up with what the examiner is seeing or the instructor is seeing, well, you're going to be marked down accordingly. Because he'll say, well, you didn't mention that combine harvester that was pulling out from the farmer's field, you know, and you're doing 100 miles an hour towards it and you you didn't see that. You could have seen that 100 yards further on if you'd looked through the trees or you'd you'd scanned through if your, if your vision was better and you're scanning, you know. So they're there as a safety mechanism. So in on the courses, that is. So if you if you're not seeing something, they're going to go. Whoa, slow down, slow down, and then all of a sudden they'll go. You didn't see that. So if you get a helicopter over the bandit car, does that alleviate the pressure to keep up with the bandit car? Yeah, well, this is the thing. Another thing with pursuits, right? Pursuits are not, this is counterintuitive, right? When you're pursuing, you've got to override the natural urge to be close to the car in front. You when you pursue, you need to extend that gap because if you get too close to that car in front and he takes a, a left down a turning or up a slip road you're not going to be able to react whereas if you increase that distance and he goes up a slip road you go yes fine no problem got plenty of time and you can react you don't need to be up their bumper 
right? And this is what's actually quite difficult about pursuit because in the initial stages when you start getting taught it, and it happened to me, I, I went through, your advanced course is a month long. So first three weeks is just driving around fast through the countryside of the UK. It's probably one of the best courses you can do, right? And it's all done very controlled, very safely, and you're not in a marked police car. You're in an unmarked car. No sirens, no blue lights. You're just driving fast with under in, in controlled circumstances, yeah? And and then in your last, and, and that's all great. Yeah, I was getting, yeah, one, one. Brilliant, ticks, ticks, ticks. You go into the pursuit week, and you're driving up the dual carriageway or the motorway, and you're in lane three, and you're right up the chuff of the car in front that you're following or pursuing, and you're coming up to an exit. If you are, if you're not backing off that car, that car's just going to go right at the last minute. As long as it's safe, of course, it's just going to go woof across all three lanes and up the up the slip road. Yeah, and then what's going to happen is you're going to go straight on, and he's lost you. So what you got to do is give him space, so that if he does that, you can safely follow and that's the difficult part and that's a bit it takes a bit of getting your head around and that's what that caught me out and my confidence went from hero to zero and I struggled with the course from that moment onwards because I was so upset with myself like why did I do that why did I do that and and I tell you what I don't know everyone's different but I used to have sleepless nights on driving courses I used to dream them and because I had sleepless nights I'd turn up at Hendon and I was absolutely shattered Right. And one day I just questioned why I is it safe to drive a car? Am I in a position to get in a car, get in it and drive it at 100, 140 miles an hour down country lanes and all around these roads? Yeah, quite challenging roads. Is this a responsible thing to do? But equally, I knew that if I said, no, I can't drive today, that would have been the end of my course because I had to get my my drives in to get through to my final assessment. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I've got some exciting news to announce. Michael Francis is coming back to tour the UK in 2024. The remade mentor, the Michael Francis story. Michael Francis, once named one of the 50 most significant mob bosses in the USA by Fortune magazine, and a former member of the notorious Colombo crime family, will take you deep into the world of organized crime, sharing captivating tales and insights into the mafia's past present and future join us for an unforgettable evening with michael francis the original goodfella as he exclusively sits down with myself sean atwood with me as the host there's going to be a no holes barred exploration of michael francis's life including his numerous arrests and jury trials that ultimately led to his pleading guilty to a federal racketeering charge, a 10-year prison sentence, and $15 million in restitution. You will have the unique opportunity to ask questions during an audience Q&A session, making this event a must-see for true crime enthusiasts and anyone curious about the underworld. Don't miss this explosive in-conversation with Michael Francis. Live on stage in the UK, this exclusive in-person event will be held in various locations in the UK, Ireland and Scotland. Link in the description box below this video if you want to grab yourself a ticket. Back to the podcast. Cheers. So what I did, and I've done this quite a lot on driving courses, I just sat there and I drank uh, a flask of really strong coffee, loads of Pro Plus, 
and a couple of bananas. <laughs> and I went out and I got two two class one and one class two drive that day. I got three really good drives in. And, I, and at the end of that, that day, I'm like, wow, brilliant. I'm back in the game. But if I'd taken the decision, and I, I seriously considered it, saying, excuse me, but I don't think I can drive today. I'm really tired. That would have been me finished off the course. So you said you never crashed, but what about colleagues? Did they get any situations? Oh, yeah. There, there, there were accidents. People had accidents, you yeah. know. Not many. I've got to be honest. See, the thing is with police, police driving, people moan about, oh, look look how many crashes the police, have, police officers have. But you've got to weigh that against how many calls they take. You know, the, the amount of calls that are taken by the police particularly in London, is, is is huge. They take hundreds of thousands of calls, if not millions of calls a year, and they might have, I don't know, one or two serious crashes. It's it, it, it's a minuscule. It's a good rate. Yeah, it's a minuscule rate. And and But people jump on the bandwagon and say, look at police driving, it's terrible. And it's not. It's actually one of the things that police, in my experience, right, it's one of the things they've always done really well, really well, and they've taken serious. And I certainly took it seriously, you know. And but I can only speak for myself. I do know of other people that probably did suffer a little bit from the red mist on occasions. Took it too seriously. I think if you take the job too personally, there's that pressure. I want to catch that person. I want to catch them. They got away from me last week. They're not doing it again. And that's the problem. You 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 take it you take it too serious and you take it too personally you're going to make an error of judgment. But for me, it was a job. It was a job. So the 7-7 attacks, how did that affect your work? What a a bizarre day. What a bizarre day. Every police officer you'll ever speak to that was in the job then will know exactly where they were on that day, uh, without a shadow of a doubt. For me, I was late turn, and it happened in the morning. What actually happened for viewers who are not familiar well, basically, 7-7, seven, seven, um, 2005, the terrorists detonated various bombs around London. There was one at Edgware Road on the Tube. There was one at Allgate East on the Tube. There was one at Tavistock Square on the bus. Um, I think there might have been another one. Was it just the three? I say just the three. But anyway, yeah, a series of bombs that detonated throughout London. And um, I think, it, I, I, I can't remember exactly how many people ki- were killed, but I think it was about 50 people were killed that, that day. And um, it was probably one of the most surreal scenes you've ever seen because I got a, I, I was at, at home, um, I got a phone call from work. TV wasn't on, so I had no idea this had happened. And I get a phone call, and they're saying, Andy, can you get into work uh, urgently? I said, right, what's happened? And they said, well, have you not seen the telly? I was like, no. Well, switch the news on, get into work. So I switched the telly on, and I was like, wow, look at this. You know, they were still talking about these electrical failures at that time, I think. You know, electrical explosions and things. But anyway, cut long story short, I was straight into work, you know. Um, And we arrived... I was in traffic at the time. We arrived at work <laughs> and bizarrely, no one had any vehicles or motorbikes to go out on because they'd cut the fleet back so much. They'd cut the, you know, reduced the amount of motorbikes, reduced the amount of cars, whatever. No one had any uh, vehicles to go out on. So we're all, we're all like rushed into work and now it's hurry up and wait, right? Right, what are we going to do then? 
Oh, right. Uh, we'll, we'll see if we can get some scooters from the PCSOs, because they had these PCSOs used to go around as little three-wheel scooters. And we were all like, I'm never going to ride one of those, you know. They're, they're not for us, you know. That's, that's you know, people were like in horror of having to go out on one of these three-wheelers, you know. But anyway, cut a long story short, certain people have been up there. They, 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 they People are out on duty for early, so they're all deployed up there. And we hurried up and waited, and then eventually we... We, we got a car. Um, we, we weren't deployed straight up there, but we were deployed around in the vicinity of the city airport. And all I remember was just people walking, walking home. London, all the roads were just full of people. There was no traffic or very little traffic, and people were just, they couldn't get home, right? The trains had all stopped, you know, and people were just walking out of London. It was really bizarre. It was almost like um, something out of a like a zombie apocalypse, you know. People just walking in the roads, just going home, just all in a bit of a daze as well. Um, so on the actual day, I had no dealings with it, you know, and I'm quite pleased about that as well. Did your colleagues have dealings? Yeah, some did, and and one person I'm particularly uh, friends with now. He's uh, he's so- suffered uh, PTSD as a result of it, you know. And he was, at, I think he was at Tavistock Square, but he was also at the Admiral Duncan bomb as well in Soho. So he he he, he was off duty and going out for a drink because his section house was up in the central London and it, and it, this bomb went off and he was involved in that as well. So, yeah, um, I, I, I had dealings with it a couple of days later. It might, it might have been the following day or, or two days later and I had to go up to... Um, Tavistock Square. I was out patrolling on motorbikes around central London. They put on extra patrols and we got a call, me and my mate, and it was like, oh, can you go to uh, Tavistock Square and speak to this uh, detective? He's got a job for you. So we turn up and he'd go, right, okay, I need that van there taken to this place. I'm not going to say where it is, but there's a place outside London that deals with all the explosive type uh, situations, yeah? We'd never even heard of it at the time. So me and my mate are like, where is this place? Never heard of it. Have you heard of it? No, never heard of it. Right, so they automatically assume that you know where this place is, you know. It's a, it's a military place, you know. And I'm like, no, I've never heard of it. So we call up the control room, right? We've got to take this vehicle to this place and, like, you know, where have you ever heard of it? And this guy, luckily, said, yeah, I know where that is. It's near such and such. And it's right outside London, you know. And uh, quite a journey. And, um, <sighs> yeah, so we had to get directions to this sneaky-beaky place. And uh, also, we couldn't do it with two motorbikes. We had to get more people involved. So we got more motorbikes, and we, we're driving this thing uh, out of London. And we we come to a place, and we go, I think we've gone wrong here. Let's just pull up and stop and find out where we are and where we got to go. And there's this bloke in this house, and he's mowing his drive, uh, mowing his lawn, yeah, his front lawn. And he says, you lost, lads? And I goes, yeah, uh, yeah, we are a little bit lost. Uh, he goes, are you looking for, uh, you know, the place? And we went, uh, yeah, we are actually. He goes, right, well, what you want to do? He just knew straight away. He saw this vehicle. He saw this um, like flatbed truck with his four police officers in, on motorbikes with this vehicle covered up. And he just automatically knew he was local. He knew where we were going, you know. But at the time, I, I, it's, it's probably open source information now, but I, I'd, I'd rather not say where it was or anything because I don't know, you know. Yeah. What about the fatal M25 situation? Yeah, yeah. Another sad one. I sold my car on the strength of that. Did you? Yeah. Well, my wife had a um, 
she had a uh, Ford KA, just like, like run around, you know. Mm. And uh, there was this 17, I think she was 17, or she might, 17 year old girl, a young girl anyway. She's driving along the, the uh, M25 in lane three, and there's a lorry in lane two, and it has a blowout. And it wandered over into her lane. Oh. And it pushed her over the central reservation no. into lane three of the oncoming carriageway. Oh, that's the worst possible thing imaginable. Yeah, and it had a head-on with an Audi A4. And it, it was literally it was literally like a plane crash. I couldn't find the engine of this car. And I, I, I sort of discovered it like 200 yards down the road, you know. And, and the car had flipped over. She, she got flung out. The car was ripped open. Like a sardine tin, really. She'd been flipped out of it, and the car was on top of her, you know, and she was dead, you know. And as a result of that, I saw what had happened. The Audi A4 was actually quite intact. Yeah. And I looked at this Ford KA, and it was just absolutely shredded. And I just went, I went home, and I went, it's one of the few th- few times the job has sort of made me sort of think about things, and I went, we're selling that. And we got rid of it off the strength of that accident, you know. But like I say, traffic stuff I found really quite upsetting, really, because it's not happening to, you know, horrible people that mix with the wrong people. It's happening to ordinary people that are just going about their daily life. And it could be you, could be me, could be my parents, could be anybody. And it, and it really hits home that these are just nice people. And and they are just end up in this horrible circumstance, and then, and and when the phone rings and the phone's on the body, you know that is just the worst because you know that that's one of their relatives or whatever. Why, why are you why are you not home? You know whatever it is. Of course you can't answer the phone because if you answer the phone, you've got to tell them. You know straight away they're going to go. Well, where is he then? Well, you can't say, you, you can't tell them that over the phone. So you just got to let the phone ring. And the phone will ring and ring and ring and ring, you know. No matter how safe it's horrendous. You, no matter how safe you drive, if a truck pushes you over the central divide. Yeah, you, you're in trouble. Chance. You're in trouble, you know. Yeah. And even if you was in a stronger car, you know, it's it, that car came off worse because it hit a car that was quite strong. But if it was two equal cars, you probably would have had other people dead in the other car as well. You know, I, you know, I don't know, but it, it, either way, it's not a good, it's not a good thing, you know. So, what's crime detection within roads policing? Yeah, well, that's this is the thing with with sort of traffic work. A lot of people think, oh, it's all, you know, I don't want to do traffic. It's just like going around doing bald tires and things, you know. But what you have got to realise is a lot of a lot of crime travels on the roads, you know. And the Yorkshire Ripper was caught from a traffic stop. You know, I think he had a dodgy number plate or something. And they stopped him and questioned him about his number plate. And I went, hang on a minute, this bloke looks a bit familiar. And hang on. And, he, and that's how he got caught, was from, a, from a, a traffic stop. So quite often, you will come across all sorts of stuff from traffic, traffic stops, you know. I, one on the Blackwall Tunnel, we had, um, this is when I was on Borough, actually. The guy was stopped for a routine traffic matter and he had a plastic bag down the back of the seat, and it had like 78 grand in the back. And in those days, you counted the money. You don't count the money anymore. But in those days, they wanted us to count the money, right? And we was there all night, like 1, 10, 20, 30, 40, 1,000, 2,000, 78 grand he had down the back of the seat. And, of course, he, he, he then gave the story that he was a, um, 
uh, an unlicensed fighter and he'd be given the money to throw a fight. That's what he said. But it was all drugs money. It was all drugs money. It was all covered in cocaine, you know, and it all got analysed. And they say a lot of money's got drugs on it, but yeah, this stuff was covered in cocaine. So yeah, there's there's lots goes on in the roads. And there was an incident where we, we stopped a woman for no tax in um, Barking Way it was. Stopped a woman for no tax, got talking to her, and she was giving false false information basically about who she was, what she was doing. And she, she got arrested for, for basically lying about her name and address and everything. But cut a long story short, when we went around her house to try and verify who, who she was, she had a printing, uh, a, a, a forgery empire going on from her bedsit, oh. you know? And she, she forged NHS identity passes. And she was working as a nurse in the NHS and she wasn't even a nurse. Wow. You know? And she had a forged pass. Wow. So what comes from, from traffic stops is quite interesting, really. Yeah. Because, like I say, crime's always travelling somewhere. All this, you know, the drugs are being driven around in cars. The firearms are being driven around in cars, you know. Your worst nightmare, though, is if you find someone that's, you know, properly tooled up and you get the gun in your face. But fortunately, that never happened to me. Yeah, that's, this is that Electric Light in Blue, that movie. Have you seen that? No. Where they no. Open, the, the traffic stop and they um, open the back of the car and they've all got guns. And, yeah, oh, really? Pretty nasty. Yeah. Um, is there a lot of, more guns in London over the years, would you say, during your career? I'm sure, I'm sure if you spoke to people, they'd probably say there are. You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I've never worked in, in, in sort of the organised crime sort of theatre, you know, in that in that field. I'm sure if you spoke to somebody that works in that and, and has got knowledge of firearms and stuff, they'd probably say there are. But I've got to be honest, I, I didn't have too many... I didn't have anyone threaten me with a firearm. The only dealings really that made me, you know... Uh, a little bit nervous was that incident with the homemade one but firearms incidents were quite common they were quite common um i do know of people that did have firearms put in their face i know a guy that had a firearm put in his face by john mcvicker one of our old sweat station officers and when he was working up central london he came face to face with john mcvicker and had a firearm put in his face you know how did that situation end oh do you know what i don't know don't know. This would have been in the seventies, I guess, early seventies or whatever. Whenever he was operating, but this guy was like coming up to retirement when I joined. You know, so that's the thing. You know, a lot of these guys when I was joining, they joined in like the sixties, so they went through the sixties and seventies. You know, you know the, the proper Sweeney times. You know, Crazy and all that and all sort that. of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So your next move is to Royal Parks from traffic. Yeah. Well, like I said about traffic, I, I um. I had a bit of a set to, didn't I, with the uh, the inspector over that um, road closure, and he and I just said, "No, I'll tell you what, my 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 task is to get out of traffic this year." And traffic was getting very political. It was becoming basically that you didn't get any points for doing your job. Now, traffic's all about dealing with fatal accidents and pre- preferably preventing fatal accidents. You know, preventing them. But if you if you was assigned to a fatal accident, you turn up and and they wouldn't count that as like you're doing any work. 
So they go, well, what work have you done today? Because they want to know how many people you're arrested, how many tickets you've done. And we, we, we didn't have any problems with that. We arrested quite a few people and we did quite a lot of warranted tickets. And when I say tickets, I weren't a ticket machine to make money for people. Like on speeding and stuff like that. We used to be so lenient, it was unbelievable. Why had a guy caught, I caught him at 145 in a 50. And I gave him a ticket, £60 and three points. I could have sent the guy to jail. He would have easily gone to jail if I put him in a book. But I tell you what, if you if you come down on them like a ton of bricks, right, they'll just think, oh, what a tosser. You know, traffic, you know, police tossers. But if you do them a turn and you go, listen, mate, you know, and you've got, you've got to have the judge, you've got to be able to judge the person, whether they're taking on board and whether they mean what they're saying. But if you say, listen, mate, if I was to give you a ticket for this, you'd, go, you'd probably go to prison. You would probably go to prison if I put you in the book, which is what I should do. And then you give them their, their sort of, read them the right acts, right? You, you tell them the errors of their ways, right? And if they're absorbing that and going, yeah, sorry, officer, sorry, I won't do it again. Yeah, I'm, I, I, yeah I've been so stupid. And they accept that. And you think that it's sinking in. Quite often I'd go, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a ticket. And that's £60 fine and that's going to be three points. If it goes the other way, you're going to go, you probably go to prison, right? And they'll take that ticket They've taken, they've really listened attentively to what you've had to say to them and they'll shake your hands at the end of it. And they walk away going, police are really good. And that's the way I used to operate, to be honest, mm. you know? That's because if you just throw the book at people for no reason, right, they just think you're a tosser and they hate police. Well, that guy's probably going to sit there at the pub and go, do you know what? Don't be so hasty about the police. They're not all bad, you know? These guys did me a really good turn, mm. you know? And we used to have that regularly, you know? I never used to stick people in the book for like, Essex police will stick you in the book for like, you know, 10% plus two. I think it's even got a 10% plus one now. You know, I've been stopped by Essex police at 30, 35 mile an hour, you know? And I in a 30, I'd never stop anyone below 45. But that's me. Right, and, and most people that I worked with were like that. So I'm, I've gone off point a little yeah, bit. Yeah, what is Royal Parks? What does that even mean? Yeah, so Royal Parks, right? Yeah, so I, I joined there under a cloud because I left traffic. It got political, right, As for, the, for those reasons. Um, and I just thought, no, I need to go and do something different. I'd never worked Central London, right, the West End. And, and Royal Parks, I thought... I went up there one day. I was on a motorbike. And the, do you remember when the Tamils were demonstrating in Parliament Square? And they were doing it for like months on end. They occupied Parliament Square pretty much. There's all these Tamil demonstrations. I'm up there on a motorbike and it's a really hot day. And I am just roasting. Right? I am roasting. And, and, and riding a bike on a hot day was just horrible because you just like literally just dripping and it was just like, and it was re- all the heat of the engine and everything. And I'm going, what am I doing up here? And I said to my mate, we need to go for a drink. So we went to this little police station at the corner of St. James's Park. That was, um, it's like, it looked like a public toilet. It's a cafe now, like a coffee room. And you go down in, down the, the steps and anyway, I went in there for a drink and I got talking to people there and I was disgruntled with traffic at that time. And they said, oh yeah, we're looking out for people here. You know, why don't you think about coming here? And I thought, you know what? Yeah, I might do. And and I I went there for a day just to have a look around and that. And afterwards, I thought, yeah, I'm going to stick an application in. So I stuck my application in. Within about like two weeks or something, I was pretty much posted there. And I turned up and I was like, within a very short shrift, I was like, what have I done? 
what have I done? Why have I come here? Because I kid you not, you're working, when you work in like the East End, everyone's like a bit of a geezer and, and, and everybody can, you know, you can swear at people and stuff like that. And everyone takes it the way it's meant to be. It's a bit more roughy tufty yeah? But when you get up to the, when you get to the central London, they're all like absolute like hooray Henrys. They really are. And this woman comes up to me in, in Kensington Gardens and she said to me, officer, officer, the seagulls are attacking the coots. Is there anything that can be done about this? And I, and I looked at my mate and I thought, what are we doing here? What are we doing? Everybody that had gone there, right, in our, on our sort of shift, the, the criminal part of it was they were taking officers straight out of training, out of training school, and putting them to Royal Parks. You were going to learn nothing in Royal Parks, right? You were going to learn nothing. They should be going to Hackney. They should be going to Brixton. They should be going to, you know, Forest Gate, places like that, where they can learn, right? Royal Parks, you're just putting them into Teletubby land. They're going to learn nothing in Teletubby land. But this is what the job were doing. It was criminal. And then there was officers like us turning up. There was like myself. I came from traffic. There was another guy came from TSG. There was another guy came from diplomatic protection. There was an SO19 firearms guy. People were going there because they were going, I want to change the scenery. I need a bit of a slower pace of life. But I was hoping that I'd be able to ride a mountain bike around the parks. Right? <laughs> I thought, oh, brilliant. I'll get out on a mountain bike and this will be great. Yeah. But what happened was, is that the people that were coming out of training, they were non-drivers. And a lot of them actually refused to drive a car, right? Even as a basic driver. Because you can drive in like a panda car as like a basic driver. You can't respond to any calls or anything, but you can just drive around taking slow time calls. They, they refuse to do that. So all the probationers out of Hendon, they were all going around on the mountain bikes. And, <laughs> and Muggins here had swapped effectively a 5 Series BMW for a crappy old Vauxhall Safira, right? And I'm thinking to myself, this is not really what I had in mind. And yet the sergeants there, there used to be a thing called Royal Parks Constabulary, right? Royal Parks Constabulary was what policed the Royal Parks up until 2005. 2005, they got amalgamated into the Metropolitan Police. So they took a load of people into the Metropolitan Police. Some of them were quite good, right? And wanted to learn and develop and took it as an opportunity to transfer to other places and things, you know. They, they saw it as, well, great, I can go and work in Hackney now. Not many of them did, though. And then you had supervisors, sergeants that had never worked anywhere outside the Royal Parks. And you would turn up to the most basic incident, and to them it was major. You know, you've got, like, I had a, I had a call, right? Can we have a unit to go to um, uh, St. James's Park? We've got a dog chasing a duck. Right? We've got a dog chasing a duck. So I... Uh, I was like, so I'm outside Charing Cross Police Station and I'm thinking, really? This is what my life's come down to, dog chasing a duck. And then it got worse because the sergeant got on the radio and he said, yeah, can we make that on an I grade, i.e. an emergency call? And I was like, there's no way I'm going to that on an I grade, right? (laughs) No way on earth because I can just imagine it in court, like you say about people getting run over, you've got the foreign tourists, right, who, instead of looking right to cross the road, looks left, right, which happens in London, and you're in the van going to your dog-chasing duck call and you run this person over, 
Now go, officer, what was the nature of the call? What was the information you was given before you accepted this call? Well, it was a dog chasing dog dog chasing a duck, uh, <laughs> Your Honour. It, it's not going to wash, is it? You're going to go inside. So, of course, that is when I just realised I needed to get out of that place. It was ridiculous. What's the worst crimes that happened in parks? We did have a few assaults. Assaults. We did have a few assaults, serious assaults, which turned into sagas in themselves. Everything in the parks turned into a saga. <laughs> Nothing was straightforward, right? Because the supervision was just ridiculously incompetent, right? Ridiculous. They hated me. They hated me, the supervisors there. You know, because I would just call them out on things. We had we had these guys that climbed up the, the front of the treasury because our... Our little police station, St. James's Park Police Station, was directly opposite the Treasury. And these protesters climbed up the top, up, up, up the front of the Treasury and got on the little balcony overlooking St. James's Park, yeah? And the, the sergeant's coming along, right, we're going to arrest them all for uh, trespass and all this aggravated trespass, yeah? And I went, no, you can't do that, Sarge. It's not a designated building. Like, aggravated trespass has to be a designated building. So it has to be like Buckingham Palace or Houses of Parliament, or whatever. The Treasury was not a designated building. It might be now, but it wasn't then, right? And he was like, he'd look at me with like steam coming out of his ears. <laughs> you know, I said, well, I'm not doing it. If you want to go and nick them, you can, Sarge, but I ain't doing it. And and it was all about figures, right? Because they wanted the arrest figures for the team because it makes their team look good. Because what you've got to remember is the Metropolitan Police runs on pie charts, right? It runs on pie charts. You've got these people that just sit there in the morning looking at pie, pie charts and bar graphs, and that's their life. And if the pie chart says that you haven't had enough arrests for that team that day, you know, they go, oh, well, you know, oh, what are we going to do? You know, we need to get more arrests. So they then put pressure on the, the inspectors and the sergeants who then try and put pressure on us. Like arrest quotas. Yeah. And people, the police will say it doesn't exist, but it absolutely does. They don't say to you, you must get all these arrests. Well, they have actually, but they generally don't. Or there'll be consequences. But I do remember that. That did happen at Limehouse. Yeah, you must have five arrests per month, right? Or there will be consequences. Now, five arrests per month is easy, right? Easy. Do that in a week, you know, without a tr- any trouble. But the fact is, those consequences would only be skills-based. They wouldn't take the area car driver off the road if he only got four arrests in a month because he's got to drive the area car. So it would all be down to the the less skilled officers would be the ones reaping the wrath. And there was pretty much at the time a mutiny on our team. And it actually actually went up to senior management and we had to go on like a team-building day um, with the Federation to discuss this governor who was basically, we, we were you know, spitting feathers about. And it went back to senior management and senior management told him, no, you can't do it. But they do try it. And, and and this is how traffic went. It was quotas. You must get this, you must get that. So many tickets. But if I've been dealing with a fatal accident all day, I haven't got any tickets to show for it. I haven't got any arrest for it to show for it. But I've been dealing with what traffic's all about. The core duty of traffic is dealing with fatals and serious personal injury accidents. You, know? you said there was a few assaults in the parks that turned into dramas. How serious were the assaults? On In the cold light of day, probably not too bad. But at the time, you know, if someone had been knocked unconscious, they, they didn't know the extent of the injuries. They didn't know whether they had brain damage or whatever. So they would assume 
that somebody might have serious head injuries and it'll all be cordoned off, crime scenes, etc., etc. But we arrested someone for that. And the, the drama of it was we went pretty much all the way around London trying to find custody space to book the guy in. So we took him down to Brixton and we turned up. We was told to go to Brixton. We turn up at Brixton and the guy goes, no, 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 no room here. Okay, so then we took him to another police station, turned up, no, no room here. So we'd wasted like four hours just trying to trying to find a cell, which is another common problem in the police now because custody space is in short supply. I remember dealing, again, on a street duties course, dealing with an ex- inexperienced officer who's just come out of training. We went to Lidl's for a shoplifter. They don't deal with shoplifters anymore, do they? But in the day they did. We've... We've got a shoplifter, nicked a load of groceries, and the nearest cell space was at Heathrow Airport. And we're in, you know, East End of London. And we went, do you know what? Forget that. And we reported them for summons. You don't have to arrest. You can report someone in a book, put a file together, but you haven't had the opportunity to arrest them and do a full interview. It's just a f- contemporaneous notes, etc. And if they get off, they get off. What's the end of it? You know, at the end of the end of the day, it's not worth the money to take someone all the way to Heathrow Airport. You know, you've got to make a judgment. So you said that the police don't deal with shoplifters these days. No, not really. What happens to shoplifters now? Well, I, I, my understanding is with shoplifters, unless it's over a certain price point, they don't even bother pretty much. So sh- isn't that an incentive to shoplift? Did you not hear about the case in Brixton recently? No. Where the, uh, the shopkeepers, it was all on the news and YouTube and all this. The shoplifters like were detained by uh, shop staff. It was like a, a private sort of corner shop type thing, you know. And they've detained these uh, the shoplifter. And she's kicked off, and they've had to use force to detain her. And basically, there was a protest outside the shop saying that they were in the wrong for detaining the shoplifter. I think I saw it on TikTok, because he used a chokehold or something like that. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. And, of course, I don't watch telly anymore. I don't watch any TV of any description, really. If I do, it'll be a catch-up thing. Mm. I watched watched an interesting thing on the Chillingdon murders the other day on Sky Documentaries. Very worth worth a watch, but um, yeah, I, I generally don't watch telly, so I'm, I'm probably a little bit behind on the news. But my understanding is shoplifters now are pretty much like they don't get dealt with. There's just no disincentive then. Well, like I said to you, I, I told you earlier about the uh, the half a million pound fraud. Yeah, not dealt with. Unless, well, if that's unless, not getting dealt with, yeah, you know. So you got moved to the control room. I didn't get moved, I volunteered. volunteered. And now that, any any sane person would say, what are you doing? <laughs> like, everybody told me, I knew people that had moved out of the control room to go to the park. So they were like, no, don't go there, it's mm. terrible. But I just thought to myself, do you know what? I've never worked in a an indoor support role. It's all been out on the streets. So I was getting a bit fed up. I, by this time, I was 20 years or so in, and I was getting a bit, little bit fed up with, like, blood, guts, snot, puke, all that sort of stuff. And I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll go and do a different aspect of the job, the control room. Not a lot of people want to do that. It was looked at like as a, oh, what do you want to do that for? Very stressful. And I thought, no, nah, no, nah, I'll be fine. It'll be all right. Won't be a problem. But what I didn't appreciate was the culture, the culture within that environment. And I had no appreciation for it. Uh, and, and this is where it probably turned a little bit south, really. So you bumped heads with leadership? Yeah, um, 
basically what happened was all the time I've been in the job, I've been covering up quite a lot of illness and say injuries, pain, muscular pains and stuff like that. Basically from the moment I started training at Hendon, I, I just finished, I, I literally left the, the forces and joined three months later. I was at Hendon, right? Now, in actual fact, two weeks, I was out two weeks, but it was about three months from returning back to the UK. I'm at Hendon and I noticed that I was getting like blistering on my fingers. I was getting blistering on my eyelids. I was getting blistering on my scalp. And I was going, well, what's all this going? What's going on here? And I, I didn't really think much of it. I just thought, yeah, get a crack on, you know. I didn't want to make waves at that time because, number one, it wasn't particularly affecting me in a negative way. And number two, why would you want to make waves when you've only just joined a job? So you just keep your head down, get through your training. And then later on, as things progressed, I started, I was at Limehouse, and I, I, if I went out walking, which was towards the end, wasn't that often. But if I went out walking, you might do it on like a day shift or something. I'd come back in and my feet would be killing me. And I used to be like hobbling around. And my, my soles and my feet were just absolutely killing me. And I'd get up in the morning, I couldn't walk properly. And it took me about 20 minutes to start being able to walk. And then that progressed and, and, and you know, would come and go. The blistering would come and go. The pain in my feet would come and go. And then later on, I moved to traffic. And while I was in traffic, I um, I started getting uh, pains in my hands. So the same sort of pains I was getting in my feet, I was getting it in my hands, like cramping pains. And, it, and I was really struggling with it. And it was about 2006. And I thought, well, I'm going to go to the doctors about this. So I went to the doctors and he said, I think you got rheumatoid arthritis. Um, I'll do some tests. So I had scans on my hands, x-rays and blood tests. And he came back and he said, no, you haven't got rheumatoid arthritis. And I thought, oh, brilliant, excellent, just crack on then. But I didn't go and say, well, okay, well, what is it? I just so pleased I didn't have rheumatoid arthritis. I just, yeah, all right, great, I'll put up with it, it won't kill me. And then we progressed, you know, a year or so, and I've got a frozen shoulder. And it just came on, I couldn't move my shoulder. Mm. I couldn't put my, I couldn't dress myself. I, I was getting out of the car, and I couldn't, on the motorway, you, had, you used to have to put a fluorescent jacket on or anything like that. I'd get out of the car and I couldn't put my jacket on. It was like a dog chasing its tail going around in circles. And quite often, the person I was with, the co colleague, would have to help me put my jacket on, you know. But I kept it really quiet because I didn't want to go to the job and go, excuse me, I've got a problem. Because they'd go, right, you're off operational duties. I want you in an office being the chief inspector's, like, gopher, you know. And I didn't want to do that. That was just purgatory to me. So I kept it quiet. And then later on... um, I got a second frozen shoulder. So that one sort of cleared up. I had um, I had acupuncture on it. And later on, I got a second frozen shoulder. And then I've gone, yeah, it was causing me a lot of trouble. Um, and, and I said, look, I need some physiotherapy on this, this shoulder. And I put my hand, head above the parapet. And they said, yeah, great. We'll, we'll try and get you some physiotherapy, whatever. So, of course, yeah, that was all good. Um, but I still didn't really let on to the extent of it. So now fast forward, these, these problems were coming and going. The frozen shoulders were there and they were causing me issues, but I was keeping it all very quiet. Moved to the control room and I was working as a dispatcher. So I was the person basically dispatching units to calls. And again, very stressful job, very, very stressful. You'd come in and you'd have a list of 110 calls on, on there and all of those need to be assigned. Wow. But there's no officers to deal. 
and you was having to juggle these this list of really important calls, but there's no one to deal with it. And there's people on your back going, well, when are you going to get someone to deal with that? And you're like, well, I can't magic someone out of thin air. It was very stressful. So anyway, I, I did a, I finished a, a set of nights and um, I woke up in the morning, in the afternoon and I just, I was like, I couldn't move. I had no energy at all. None. I was like, I can't move. I'm just so tired. Right. And it was like someone had stuck a needle in me and just syringed every ounce of energy out of me. And cut a long story short, I didn't know what was going on then, but I knew there was something seriously wrong. I was housebound for two and a half months, roughly. Wow. Two and a half months. Never, you know, if I went out, it might, I might be like, you know, a slow stroll to the shops and I'll be back and I'll be wasted for four hours. I was absolutely knackered. So I still had the pains in my shoulders. I was still getting this blistering. I still had the, all the other stuff that was going on, but when the fatigue hit, it, I, 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 my short-term memory was absolutely non-existent. It was literally in one ear and out the other. Um, my concentration was 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 non-existent. I was racked with pain. Yeah, so all my muscles were aching. All my joints were aching. Um, I was got. I had really bad tinnitus, which I've still got now. It's going now at the moment. But my tinnitus was kicking off. That 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 never really materialized until then i had all these things going on i was getting really bad night sweats so i'd wake up in the night and it was like someone had chucked a bucket of water over me and i was like just hot and cold all the time and it was just horrendous so anyway cut a long story short gone to the doctors and the doctor signed me off okay but they didn't know what was wrong with me um i was getting really bad chest pains as well like acid and all sorts of things. Cut a long story short, I got signed to four consultants. I was under an endocrin- endocrinologist, a gastroenterologist, a ear, nose and throat guy because my tonsils had swollen up to the size where they're touching. <sighs> and when he looked down my throat, he went, he, first time I ever saw the guy, he looked down my throat and said, they're coming out. As quick as that, they're coming out. So I had to have my tonsils out, which was horrendous at the age of 42 or something <sighs> like that. I think it might have been a bit older than that, actually. But yeah, I was in my 40s. So I've had my tonsils out. Um, and the other person I got referred to was a fatigue specialist. We're really fortunate that near to here, there is a, a fatigue consultant and a clinic that deals with chronic fatigue. Okay, I've not been diagnosed with anything at that point, other than your tonsils are swollen and you've got a frozen shoulder and you, you, you've got tinnitus, etc., etc., etc. But nothing, there was no real mechanism as to what was causing it so i decided to write because i had all these symptoms like on and off for years since i come back from the gulf i wrote a an e- i sent an email to the royal british legion and i explained what was going on and i said do you think this could be linked to service in the gulf and they came back to me and they said yeah t- we absolutely do because it's it's typical of the sort of things that people are complaining about and and I did a bit more research and I read reports that up to two thirds of people that went to the Gulf are now suffering with some form of ill health. Okay. So I'm like, wow, okay, well, I need to get in contact with people now and and see what's going on with this. Because I was, I'd heard about it on the news, but I'd never paid any attention. So I joined a Facebook group. I think it was a secret or a closed Facebook group for Gulf War veterans. And the knowledge that these people had 
was astounding because these people have been fighting since day one, a lot of them, for treatments and, and, and pensions and things because a lot of them had not, had not been able to work, you know. Um, and, and the work they had been doing, one of them was a, a, a fast jet navigator, you know, a uh, guy called uh, Mike up in Scotland. And, and, and he was just going through exactly the same sort of stuff. And there was another guy that had been homeless on the streets of London and, you know, and, and, and that to get himself out of homelessness because of it all. And, um, yeah, the extent of it was quite substantial. So uh, cut a long story short there, I became, effectively, I, I sort of threw myself into sort of campaigning and I wrote letters to people and basically it, I got picked up by the Shadow Defence Secretary, a guy called Jim Murphy at the time. And through a local councillor, I was messaged and said, oh, he wants to meet with you. <laughs> so he came around my house and he spent about an hour and a half with me. And, we, and he, he was doing a, He said he wanted to meet because he was doing work on veterans welfare and stuff. So at that time, I had a lot of documents and uh, you know stuff that I could show him. And I showed him this declassified secret document. And basically it said that, the uh, Ministry of Defence thought that the program was... Uh, can I say that word on this, in this context? No, the V word the is v terrible, word. yeah. Well, I'll write well that down. The, 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 tre the treatments that they had administered during the, uh, the Gulf, yeah, the, the treatments that they had administered, the advantage of administering that treatment was to obtain human data on the e efficacy of those treatments, yeah, and it's really not probably not coincidental that the 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 trials they used to do at Port and Down they 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 were shut down the year before, yeah, and I, when I was serving, I regularly used to see because I was in communications, I regularly used to see messages coming through asking for volunteers to go to Port and Down, and of course it was like it was almost like an unwritten rule that you just didn't even entertain it. It just they just got filed and that was it. No one ever asked anyone, oh, do you want to go to Port and Down for three hundred quid? You know, like why would you? But um anyway, that that happened. So he came and, and he, he he just sent he, he looked at this signal and he went, Guinea pigs then. Guinea pigs then and he said, I knew nothing of this. And then we got the uh the, the there was a, me a memo from the Department for Health that said to the Ministry of Defence, we think that this combination of treatment that you're going to give to people is um, is not advisory because it's not been tested. And they did it anyway, you know. But anyway, cut a long story short with all that, this is all still ongoing. And there is due to be Dave, David Beckham's, I think it's David Beckham, Hilary Mer Meredith Beckham. Uh, it's David Beckham's stepmom. She's a solicitor. And she's taken on the case, no win, no fee for a lot of veterans. I was involved in it, but I found it very stressful again. And it was bringing back all the stuff that I went through with the job. And I just thought, I don't need any payout for this. It's not about payout. It's about acknowledging that you did wrong and that you made people ill. So for me, I bailed out because I thought, well, if you, if you acknowledge to those people that what you did was wrong, that's good enough for me. So I, I didn't get involved. So but, you start to get sweated over your illness. I, I, I basically, yeah, I, I'm going to say now there, I, I was in a really bad way, right? I couldn't do the job. I, if I did the job, I would have been a risk to other people. And I made people aware of that. Now, as a result of that, 
there was a disagreement for which went through legal processes. And I'm not at liberty to talk about exactly what went on. Um, suffice to say that um, it was resolved and then things followed on from that, which I will talk about because it's not covered by the the uh, the restrictions. So does this... You got you taking a trip to Prague. Are we at that point now? Not really, but you know this. This we got to say this went on for like twenty eleven is when I fell ill, and it wasn't resolved until twenty fifteen. So we're talking about a four year period of stuff that I can't really talk about. So were you off sick for that four years? No, no, no. I was on what's called restricted duties. Okay. So after me two two and a, two and a half months where I couldn't get out of bed, I went back to work on restricted duties. But basically, yeah, we we didn't see eye to eye. My the job and my medical people were not seeing eye to eye. Let's leave it at that. And then I had to make a decision what I was going to do about it. Was I going to fight it or was I going to let? Was I going to be hit with a big stick? Well, I decided to fight it. That was resolved. Um, and and then once that was resolved, I was still on restricted duties. Okay, so I'm still working at at I'm now working at Lambeth uh, control room. But basically, I w- I was like, I was marked. I think I was marked. There was people coming after me. I think probably to make me resign. Did you have to go to tribunals? Yeah, we went through the legal process. But it was settled. I'll leave it at that. It didn't actually go to tribunal, but it was settled um, four days before a hearing. So, Are you able to talk about the phone conversation you overheard? Yeah, absolutely. Like I say, the things I've mentioned to you are things that I'm perfectly willing to talk about because, you know, there were, there were lots of things that happened that weren't linked to the, the case, okay? And there was lots of things that happened to me after the case was settled, Yeah which I, I, I class as victimisation. And, and, and it got to the point where we nearly went for a second tribunal. Okay. So so basically what happened was with that conversation, um, there was a guy that I used to work with and he was quite involved on the day of the 7-7 bombings in a control room. And as a result of that, he had quite a lot of anxiety and uh, dealing with, the, dealing with a, being a dispatcher. Because you're always on, you know, he, you're on tent hooks, thinking, well, what's going to happen next, and when's that call going to come? You know, he'd already dealt with this horrendous terrorist attack, yeah, at um, Allgate. Um, as a result of that, he was suffering from various health conditions. All right, and um, they were going to discipline him for attendance because of. You know, basically not been properly supported. So he's he's got he's got PTSD type things, you know, mental health type things, anxiety and stuff, and they're not supporting him. So they're gonna they're gonna discipline him. So I sat there at this terminal, and, and no more than about six foot away from me was this uh, civilian supervisor who's talking to a superintendent. Okay, and he's saying, "Well, I can tell you now, um, this person, my friend." I'd contacted him asking for some time off, some annual leave. 
And the conversation went, well, I, what I didn't say to him, though, Governor, was that at the end of this, uh, this um, hearing, he can have as much time off as he likes. Chuckle, chuckle, chuckle. Which to me was, he's going to get sacked. Yes, I know. And then it went on to say, yes, I know the result we've got to get from this. And, and that will be the result. He can have as much time off as he likes. You know, and it was quite clear that they were going to sack this guy. Now, he was mentioning his name. You know, so not not only was he talking about a person, he was talking about a named person in front of. If you went into these one of these control rooms, there's three of them in 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 the Met. There's one at one at Bow, one at Lambeth, one at Hendon. Okay, now each of those rooms is probably about half the size of a football pitch. They're massive, right? So you've got hundreds of people on these floors, and he's talking about a person that works at this place openly to a superintendent about how they're going to stitch him up at his um at his discipline hearing so anyway i heard that and i thought nah i don't i don't go for this so i opened an email to myself and i and i just typed down exactly what i was hearing yeah so there's a date on it and the time yeah and i just sent it to myself didn't send it to anyone in particular I sent it to myself so it was, there was a record at least made. And then, I, and then I discreetly sort of walked over and I made a note of the, te- the telephone that the guy was using. Because all those telephones have got a serial number and you can pull the tapes, the recordings of those, yeah, telephone conversations. So I thought to myself, if I've made a record of what's been said and I've made a record of what who it is saying it and the, the, the terminal number, I'll mention it to this person. And if he wants to take it further, he can get all this looked at. But when I spoke to him, he was going to a tribunal and he did win his tribunal. Um, he didn't want to involve me. But I was more than willing to stand in the box and say exactly what had gone on because to me that was just absolutely unacceptable. But at that point, I knew that I wasn't dealing with honourable people in any way, shape or form, you know. What about this fraternity of brothers and sisters you've put 20 plus years of your life into? doesn't exist doesn't exist in the Met it doesn't exist it's dog eat dog don't get me wrong if you're on a team and you're working with other officers on the teams that I worked with they were brilliant right every team without exception Royal Parks may be a bit different but there were some good people there don't get me wrong right but there were there were there were some people that yeah were a bit challenging but basically every place I worked on doing the job on response, all the teams were top-notch, absolutely top-notch. But the the hierarchy is where the damage is done. And and there were people at the park, uh, uh, at Lambeth, used to come to me and say, Andy, I feel like jumping in the river. And you go, really? Like you, uh, what's the problem? I just don't want to be here. I can't see a way out. I just want to jump in the river. And you was you was I was becoming like a counsellor to people, right? Because people used to come to me and sit down and tell because they knew that I was sort of pretty by this time I'd I'd gone through my process with the job, okay, and they they thought I was pretty knowledgeable on what to do about certain things, and I and I was actually I was even my federation representative sort of said to me, Andy, I've learned so much from you. You have taught me so much, you know, because. You just learnt, learnt, You just muddled your way through. It's like a game of chess. You had to say, well, if I make this move, 
this is they've got this option, this option, or this option. So if they do this option, I'll do this. And if they do, so you was having to be two or three steps ahead all the time, and I and I absolutely was. But the amount of energy that that took out of me was not helping my recovery. It was just making me angrier and angrier and angrier. And when you're taking a legal case and you've got, you think, oh, so a lot of people go, oh, it's great. You've got a barrister or you've got a solicitor. But the thing is, these barristers and solicitors can only go on the information that you give them. So it's not the end of the road just getting a barrister assigned to you because they'll send you all this information, all these emails day in, day out saying, right, we've had disclosure from this and can you give me your comments on this? And there'll be a file that thick. And you've got to work through it, giving your comments going, now that couldn't have happened because I've got an email here saying that that's a lie, et cetera, et cetera. So unless you've kept really good records, it doesn't matter that you've got a barrister or a solicitor working for you. You've got to have the information to give them for them to win your case. And that's the bit that only you can do. So why did you walk out? Well, towards the end, I, I was getting serially serially harassed basically victimized so we'd we'd settled our legal case but rather than the job go right leave them alone for two years right they just probably decided that as i was getting nearer to the end of my service if they can get me to leave they save themselves quite a lot in pension really there's money that that they can save so you lose your pension well, I wouldn't lose my pension, but I'd, I wouldn't get it. I wouldn't get the, the same amount. Because mm. if you work a day under 30 years, your pension is substantially reduced. It's, it's not so much you don't get it, but you get it in a different format. Your lump sum's reduced, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So basically, it would be, they're just vindictive. Okay. So I, I had things like I, I was going to Prague. Okay. And we, I booked this city break to Prague and, and we was now like a couple of days from going and I came into work and I look on the duties terminal I look on there and it's got me working and I'm like hang on I've booked a holiday at Prague like so I go downstairs to duties and I say to them like I'm going to Prague that day why have you got me show me working and they'd say oh no 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 you cancelled your leave and I said hang on why would I cancel my leave if I'm going to Prague on holiday no, 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 you've cancelled it. It's nothing to do with us. I said, all right, when did I cancel it then? They said, well, you cancelled it. I think they said 10th of December. And I went, that's really interesting, that, because I wasn't at work at 10th of December. And they literally went, oh, 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 hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. Let me just have another look. Oh, yeah, there's been a mistake. Um, Yeah, okay, yeah, we'll reinstate your leave. Okay, so that was the first time. I let that one go. <clears throat> And then we fast forward to a, a Christmas period. And I've, I'm, I'm, I always cook Christmas dinner. I right? always do, always have. I've only ever worked one Christmas in the job. Right? I don't do Christmas. If I can get it off, I get it off. And because it's a bank holiday, you always can. Because you can always sell your bank holiday to someone because it's double time. So there's always someone who will take a bank holiday off you. <laughs> so um, I always used to take that Christmas off. So I come into work and someone says to me, Andy, I thought you was off at Christmas. I'm like, yeah, I am off. Well, not according to duties, you're not. And I looked at the duty roster and it had me working, right, for Christmas Day. So at that point, I've lost the, lost me, lost the plot, right? And I've, I've gone over to the supervisor and I said, right, I'm going to go home. Because if I don't go home, I'm going to go through this, this place like a tornado, right? I am absolutely livid. So I've walked back to my, 
my my desk and I'm putting stuff in my bag and this guy's come over to me. He goes, what, what do you mean you're going home? You can't just go home. You have to see the duty officer. I, said, I don't have to see the duty officer. I'm, everyone's lawfully entitled to place themselves sick. I'm placing myself sick for your good and for my good, right? Because I don't feel that I can deal with this anymore and I'm going to smash someone's face in, right? And, and and so he said, well, you can try. I said, yeah, I will try, mate. And I'll, and I'll do you as well, right? And it was getting really heated because I don't like people f- like fronting me out. Not in that frame of mind. You know, it becomes like you're throwing down the gauntlet now, aren't you? And I could see myself getting carted out of there in handcuffs. So I just said, I tell you what, I will go and see the duty officer and then I'm going home. So I went to see this duty officer who was a female officer. I'd never spoken to her, never seen her in my life. And she goes, come in. So I go in the office. She goes, I understand there's a problem. I goes, yeah, just a little bit. She goes, sit down. I goes, no, I'd rather stand. And she said to me, you sit down like I was a school child. So I basically said to her, like, don't ever you talk to me like that. I said, just because you've got a bit of bird shit on your shoulder, <laughs> don't you dare talk to me like that. And she said, oh, I'm really... And she sort of stepped back. She wouldn't expect him to get fronted out. And she said to me, oh, um, I'm really sorry. I've got an 11-year-old at home and I, I just forgot myself. <laughs> and I, that, that's the mentality of these people. They think they're talking to children. Yeah. So I said, I'll make it clear now. At the end of this conversation, I'm going home. So, of course, we had this conversation. I told her what had been going on. And I said, I can't work here at the moment. I'm not in the right frame of mind. I can see it's clear victimisation. And these people weren't aware of the full circumstances, the case that had been going on for four years before or anything like that. And the, the settlement that we'd agreed, you know, they weren't aware of any of that. They're just judging it on face value at that time. You know, but of course, for me, it was like the straw that broke the camel's back. So um, anyway, I went home, right? So that day, my, my, my line manager rings me and he says, Andy, what's the problem? So I explain, uh, you know, and they said, right, OK, if we can get your leave reinstated for Christmas, will you come back to work? I said, yeah, not a problem. So, yeah, that was all done. I came back to work. But while I was away, my line management had changed. My second line manager, I had inspectors, right? And um, one inspector had, you know, gone off somewhere else and I've got a new inspector. And while I'm sitting there at my terminal, I could see out the corner of my eye this new inspector walking towards me with my line manager, my first line manager. And because of the frame of mind I was in, I was just like, right, here we go. Because I thought he was going to have a go at me over what had happened with the duty officer. So he comes walking over to me. He goes, Andy, uh, and now I, st- I just stood up. Before he said anything, I stood up and said, right, where do you want it then? That's the frame of mind that I was in. Right, where do you want it then? Because I knew there was going to be a row and I was in the constant fight mode. And he said, Andy, Andy, calm down. There is no problem. I don't know anything about what's gone on. Sit down, tell me everything that's going- gone on. And i got to say, from that moment onwards, that guy was absolutely awesome awesome i've got nothing but praise for him his name's matt devereux i will name him he's absolutely one of the best governors i've ever come across awesome um and he was so on side but this thing just continued despite him being on side this thing was outside his remit you know it was going on in the in the machines of the metropolitan police yeah in in the, in the workings and I was still getting all this like harassment, and it and it come to the point where I was resi- uh, leaving the job. I was coming to retirement, and my duty roster was promulgated up until July. 
but I wasn't due to leave until August, until December. But I needed to know, I needed to have my roster promulgated right up to December so that I could pick the day that I was going to leave. And the reason you need to pick the day is because, for argument's sake, you could be annual leave Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. There's no point leaving Sunday. You want to leave on Thursday because otherwise you don't get paid those three days. Mm. It's your prerogative to decide when you leave. So, of course, you need to know so you can pick your day so you're not selling yourself short of money. So basically, um, I asked for my duty officer, my, my, my roster to be extended. Yeah, no problem. Go through the correct channels, all done. So I did it all, promulgated it, sent it through my line manager. It went off to HR. They went, yeah, all good. There's your duty. There's your duties. Next thing, I've got an inspector from duties on my case going, Andy, you've been really underhand. We noticed that you're not working enough hours and you're going to have to, you're going to have to sort this out and I'm going to come and speak to you about it. Well, I, I was not in the mood to speak to this woman, and I just said to my to, to Matt, I just said, "Look, can I can I make you aware of this happening? I can't speak to her because if I do, I'm going to lose my temper. Um, can I leave this with you?" And he said, "Andy, leave it with me. I'm going on annual leave for ten ten days. When I di- when I get back, I'll deal with it, and I'll send her an email not to contact you." While he was on annual leave, I just got bombarded, bombarded, bombarded with emails from this inspector. And I just thought to myself, what am I doing here? This was in April of 2017. What am I doing here? So I I, I went home and the penny dropped. I went, I don't have to be here. I can go to the doctors, get signed off. So I went to the doctors and I just literally, I I popped my cards on the table. I said, I'm going to hurt someone. I'm going to really hurt someone if I stay at work because I cannot stand being bullied. They're trying to bully me and I will not allow that. So it's going to come to a head. And he went, when do you retire? And he went, I said, well, December. He goes, okay, I'll sign you off for four months. So he signed me off for four months there and then, right? So that took me right through to August, end of August. Well, it was our 25th wedding anniversary, and we was going to go to Gibraltar to celebrate that. But now, instead of that being annual leave, I was going to be off sick. And I thought, I know what the job are going to do. They're going to go, well, why did you go off to Gibraltar when you was off sick? So I put my cards on the table and I emailed everybody and I said, Look, I'm going to be going to Gibraltar while I'm off sick because it's not it's going to do me good. It's not going to delay in any any shape or form my return to work. As far as I'm concerned, I'm just putting it out there so that you can't start saying that I've been, you know, doing stuff on the sly while I've been off sick. And they've gone, yeah, no problem, no problem whatsoever. Go and enjoy your holiday. So I've gone back to um, gone to Gibraltar, had a break, you know, done a 25th wedding anniversary meal and all that. And then <clears throat> I've come back to work. And when I came back, I was now having trouble with my wrists and my elbow. I'd got carpal tunnel and um, what do you call it? Oh, God. Carpal tunnel and tennis elbow, that sort of thing. Um, so I, spent, I said to Matt Deverell, I said, look, I've got a problem with my wrists. The job involves a lot of typing. You're using keyboards all the time. So I said, like, you know, I'm going to need to rest it from time to time, as long as you're aware. Yeah, no problem, Andy. If you need to rest, you rest. Not a problem. I know all about it. Brilliant. So anyway, this particular day, my, my arm's killing me. And I just thought, I just need a rest. So I've stopped typing. I'm talking to this sergeant that's sitting next to me. And this big supervisor woman who I'd never spoke to, never seen in my life. She comes over and goes, I've been watching you for 20 minutes and you've done no work at all. And I said, do you know what? 
That's the last time I get spoken to by a three-year-old. And I got up, I walked down to my locker, emptied it, and I went home. And that was how I left the job. Wow. I went home, and when it comes to do the formalities of, you know, handing in your warrant card, uh, signing your papers, and all that sort of stuff, I'd... um, I said to Matt Devereaux, I'm not going to come. He said, do you want to come into the office and we'll get it all done? I said, no, I'm not. never stepping in the police building again unless I'm in handcuffs, right? So there's stuff in my locker that's police-related. Here's my locker key. You're going to have to deal with that. We'll meet in the, we'll meet in the cafe at Lambeth Palace, right, which was sort of opposite where I worked. And we met in there. We had over a cup of coffee. We did all the leaving paperwork, right? And that was it. And that's how I left. And he goes... And he gave me a bottle of wine. He said, Andy, well done. Well done. Because he knew that what was going on. And, and, he, and he, 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 basically, I took out as well done for not caving into them, you know, because these people know. I had another inspector come up to me, who I won't mention. And he said to me, and we got talking, he said, do you know what? I hate it here. He said, it's like a black cloud over my head. He said, my wife, uh, my girlfriend has left me. I've had to move the, move out of the flat. I don't see my, my child. And everything I do here gets overruled. I can't make any decisions. When I, Before I came here, the buck stopped with me, pretty much. But now I'll get treated like an infant. And that was, a, that was an inspector, right? And I'm just like, wow, I've never had an inspector offload like that to me, you know? But it was, it's just a poisonous place. There's people there that are, that are suffering from cancer. And they were saying to me, I can't get time off to go for my chemotherapy. And anyone knows anything about chemotherapy, it must be done on a regular schedule. There are there are times that you have to go for it and you can't mess about with it. And they're going, oh, no, we can't spare you. Now, anyone that knows anything about the law knows that from the moment a diagnosis of cancer you are covered by the Equalities Act 2010. So they must make what, what's called reasonable adjustments for you by law. There's a, there's a couple of conditions that are automatically covered. Uh, cancer, um, I think it's HIV is one. And I think it might be motor neurons disease is the other. But there's several conditions, but cancer is definitely one of them. They, that, but from the moment of diagnosis, you are automatically covered. But the Metropolitan Police Service doesn't seem to have any respect for employment law whatsoever or the Equalities Act. They will basically bully everybody, and it's only the people that take them to task that they back down from. Did you feel relieved once you'd quit that day? Absolutely. It was like everybody that retires from the job just goes, wow. Because that, that, that warrant card is, a lot of people look at it as, oh, great, I've got a warrant card. That really gives me loads of powers. Those powers become a millstone, right? Because you are duty-bound, off-duty, anywhere, to get involved in certain circumstances. And every time you're a serving police officer with that warrant card, you have got certain responsibilities that go with it. And those responsibilities become, the longer you go through the job, at first it's all great, you know, I've got a warrant card. Then it's like, I can't wait to give it back because you're handing back all that responsibility. Even though it was a relief, did you miss it a bit at some point, like the adrenaline? Do you, what, do you know, um, there's nothing I miss about the job other than the people. And I'm not saying all the people, 
like I said, some of the best people I work with I've ever met are in the job. Some of the worst people I've ever met are in the job. So when I look at the best people, I worked with some amazing people, and I, and I miss the banter, I miss the humour. Believe it or not, there's a lot of laughs to be had in the job, and it, and it was an absolute scream. For, for most of the time. And there were days when I used to come home from work and I go, I just can't believe I've just been paid for doing that, for having so much fun and I got paid for doing it. You know, there, there, there were some really good things. And I'm not here to bash the job at all. What I'd like people to realise is that what goes on behind the scenes with, with, with people, you know, and, and the way people get treated by the senior management. Now, I tried to blow formally the whistle on this. I tried to go to the... Um, DPS, the head of DPS. And I did. I, I, I met with the, the head of DPS with my federation rep. And I was caught on the back foot. For the first time ever, I wasn't ahead of, ahead of this chess game. And I was caught on the back foot. And he just turned around to me and said, you can't talk to me about this, can you? Meaning the agreement. He said, you can't talk to me about this, can you? And I, I just went, uh, well, 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 no, I don't suppose I can. Well, that's the end of it then. And I got out of that room and I went, of course I can talk to him about it because a lot of this happened in the peripheries after that agreement was made, yeah? So there was all this, you know, all my cancelling of leave and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, and, and the other thing that happened to, to us is that um, they were, they were they, they're control freaks there. You had these, you had these supervisors there, civilian supervisors, and and they thought they didn't like police officers, right? Uniformed police officers, they didn't like them, and this was their opportunity to, in their mind, lord it over a police officer because in ordinary life they can't do that, right? So they'd come up to you and they'd go, right, I need you to sit over there by the window, and I'd say, no, I sit here because I was suffering from um, what do they call it, where where you overly sensitive to light. I know I've got a light shining in my face now, and I don't, I don't have that problem now. But then I did, and I and I, I, I struggled because the building as well was very low. It used to be a car park, so the ceilings were really low, and it was quite oppressive. So I'd say to him, "No, I sit here because I suffer from uh, uh, I've got a I've got occup- occupational health reasons." And she laughed. She just went, <laughs> "Occupational health reasons," and walked off. Right. I looked at my mate, right opposite me. And I went, did I just hear that? He goes, yeah, you did. And I went, well, I'm not, I'm not having that. So I walked up to her and I said, excuse me. And she was standing up, putting her epaulets on. She'd just come on duty. She's putting her epaulets on. So excuse me, uh, why were you laughing? Well, I wasn't laughing. Well, you was laughing. I just saw you. Um, what's so funny? And, and, and she, I distinctly remember her standing up and the duty officer was sitting next to me. Okay. Or I was sitting there and anyway she goes no i wasn't laughing if i was laughing you'd know all about it and i went right just leave it andy i said yeah whatever and i walked away by the time i got back my 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 colleague right who i'm very good mates with now he's typed up everything what's gone on and he sent it to me he said andy i've sent you an email with everything that was said and done um just for your record i forwarded it to to my line manager and i said um just to let you know, this happened. I don't want any action taken on it. Just want you to be aware of it. Leave it at that. Didn't think much more of it. A couple of weeks later, this guy who's sitting opposite done that email. 
his line manager comes up to him and says, uh, I've had a, uh, a complaint about you. Apparently you've been uh, acting slightly out of character and uh, you've uh, threatened a member of staff. And anyway, I'm listening, my ears are pricking up, right? Because I'm thinking, all oh, right, what's going on here? And then basically I'm listening to this conversation and I deduce from it that they're talking about the same incident. So I said to him, excuse me, can I just butt in? I think you find that's aimed at me. Can you send it to my line manager? Anyway, goes off to my line manager. Basically, what she said is that I went up to her. She was sitting in her chair. That I've pushed her with all my all my strength into her desk and screamed at her at the top of my voice. And that there's six witnesses that are going to testify against me. Okay, that I've been threatening towards her. Right, and they're expecting me, obviously, to back down. And go, oh my God, yeah, okay, I better wind my neck in. Well, I've so so when that's been brought to my attention by my line manager, I've just said to him, "Great, that's not a problem. The more witnesses you've got, the more inconsistencies there'll be in the story. And I'm assuming making a false allegation against the police officer will be in itself a sackable offence." And he was like, "Well, yeah, if it's false." I said, "Fine, let them run with it." Within about 10 minutes, it all been boshed. <laughs> oh, they, um, they've said that they don't want to, they're not going to pursue it on this mm. occasion. Now, that, again, they caught me on a good day because what I should have done is said, no, 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 the allegation has been made. You can't withdraw it because it's an allegation of misconduct. So therefore it must, we're all duty bound to run with this allegation. And had I, had they caught me on a better day, <laughs> that's exactly what I would have insisted on because the tide of shit would be pushed back into their, their direction. And that's what I was all about. I, I just wish, I, I just wish I had a t-shirt on with like, don't fuck with Andy or something like that. And, and then life would have been easy. But they, they just wouldn't stop. They would not stop. So, yeah. And then my line manager, my one of my previous line managers came up to me. And this person said that they were pulled in by legal branch, sat down and were asked to lie about specific areas of the case and to say that certain things didn't happen. And this is legal branch of Metropolitan Police. And this person came up to me and told me that to my face. Quite a senior person as well. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's sort of the crux of what you're dealing with. So when that person at the end of the telephone call, when you dial 999 or when you're, you're dealing with the control rooms, when you're speaking to these people, you've got to bear in mind that these people might be having having a bad day themselves they might be um suffering from cancer and can't get treatment because they won't be allowed time off i think a lot of the public when they hear about police corruption they think of like cops on the take and mm. shaking people down or drug bust and they take some cash or drugs but from your experience it sounds like the corruption is in on the police within the police being corrupt of a police absolutely I'm not saying that's the only aspect of it, yeah. but from a senior management point of view, they're bullies. And I, and I knew straight away that this must be sanctioned at a very high level. And the reason I knew that is because the people that were pitted against me were senior. And they wouldn't do it if they thought that I could go above their heads and that they would be pulled, to tar- pulled into line. What's the motive? Um, I think it's... I think it's basically they 
they're probably trying to save money. I think they probably wanted me to resign and then they would have saved money on the pension. I know another officer, a very good friend of mine. I knew him from Royal Parks. Very good friend of mine. He was a, he was a guy who used to work on TSG and uh, he was a keep fit guy, always out cycling, running, you know, going to the gym every day. And then one day he went into work and someone said to him, mate, you don't look very well. I'm not happy with you. I'm going to call an ambulance. Called an ambulance, took him off to hospital. He had a, a heart condition that he knew nothing about and his heart stopped in the hospital. Yeah. So if it wasn't for this eagle-eyed guy that had raised these concerns, he might have died. Yeah, so when, he's, when his heart stopped, he was in hospital, defibrillated him, etc. They found out he had a heart defect that he, he just didn't know anything about. Cut long story short, again, he, he's looking for ill health retirement because he can't do the job. He's, he's, he's finished, right? There's nothing medically um, that's going to allow him to do the job. So he got called in to see a chief inspector. And this chief inspector said, well, why don't you just resign? And he was like, well, why would I resign when I've done enough service to get a medical pension, a medical retirement? There's regulations in this job, and I'm entitled to a medical discharge and a pension. Why would I just resign and get nothing? It's almost like the money is their money, and it, and, and they're going to get a, like a pat on the back for saving the job money. They're, they're, they're absolutely cutthroat. And they will go to any any lengths, either that or they're just bullies, either that or they're just insignificant people, maybe a mixture of all three. But, you know, like I say, people join the job for different reasons. And some of these people that get promoted are promoted well beyond their capabilities, you know, and they haven't got the moral courage to stand up to their people above them and say, no, I'm not doing that. Like if I was in their position and someone from up top said to me, well, I want you to bully a member of staff, I'd turn around and say, no, I'm not doing that. And and if you and, and you can do that, and I will be, you know, and I'll do my utmost to, to make sure that you get the consequences you deserve. It's just not acceptable. Not in a job which is supposed to be full of honourable people. You know, the first requirement of a police officer is to have a backbone, is to have a backbone and stand up for what you believe. But it seems to me the higher up the ladder they go, the weaker their backbone is and the less their beliefs are, and they're not prepared to stand up for right and wrong. So they're promoting the kiss asses. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the people that should get promoted, the people that want to be police officers, right, actually want to be out on the streets, catching baddies, right, helping people, saving people's lives, you know. They're the people that don't want promotion. Because promotion means they can't be out in the streets doing being a police mm -hmm. officer. You see what I'm saying? As soon as you get promoted, you're not a police officer anymore. You wear a police uniform, but you're not a police officer. You're dealing with management stuff, pie charts, bar graphs, you know, and that's what they deal with. They sit there each morning, have a meeting, look at the pie charts. You know, there, there was a, the chief inspector, a chief superintendent there was a, a woman called Pippa Mills. And she went on to be, I think she's currently Chief Constable of West Mercia. And she became Deputy or Assistant Chief Constable of Essex. Now, she used to get uh, every, every weekend off, pretty much. People that are working there in that 
department that she was in charge of got one weekend off in 10. Right, one weekend off in 10. Every Monday, she would send an email across to all the staff saying what a wonderful weekend she had off with her children. Now, if that's not the actions of a narcissist, what is? There was a cop I interviewed out of Manchester and he got run out, there was a conspiracy against him, by Freemason police officers. Really? Did you ever come across anything like that? I know of officers that were discreetly Freemasons. I never heard of any officers talking openly about Freemasonry at all. But I did know of some officers that I believe to be Freemasons. But I've got to be honest, whatever happened in the Freemasons stayed in the Freemasons. I I I had no inclination to join them, and I and and, and I've got invited? friends. And I've, I, I have been mm-hmm. after I left or towards the end of my service. I was invited, and I, I've got friends that are Freemasons, and that you know have invited me to join, but it's just not my cup of tea. The, the formality of it all, you know, I'm not a formal person. I don't do black tie dinners and things like that. It's not my cup of tea, so. No, it's not something that appeals to me and it's not something I really have any knowledge of. Um, so earlier you said you had some knowledge of the Essex Boys case. Yeah. Um, and it's not far from well, here. The, the reason being is that obviously that happened about 90... I'm going to say about 96, I think. But anyway, it, it, it's all based around here, really. And um, What's I, around I, here, specifically? Well some of the people and the, the characters involved, you know. And, and more recently, I've become, I, I, I've met the people that own that farm, White White House, is it White House Farm? Is that where they were killed? Yeah. I, I've, I've met the people that uh, that work there or, or own that farm and say lovely people. And did they and, own it when it happened? Yeah, they did. Yeah. And, and, and they actually found, I don't talk to them about it. It was like one of the things people said, don't mention it to them. So I don't talk to them about it. It's not, I don't think it's the right thing, but um, I've, because of that, I looked into it a bit more recently. I've watched some of your own podcasts and I've watched podcasts from other people. And um, there's a guy and he, he goes for the statements for that case. And there's there's one guy he's talking about this car company called Cousins Cars, and funnily enough, my ears pricked up because Cousins Cars was a company that I bought a car from back in the eighties, and it's based probably two miles away from here. It's not called Cousins Cars anymore; it's Eastern Garage, bottom of One Tree Hill, and um, that was apparently given to an ex Met police officer to run, and he was going out with. Um, Tony Tucker's sister, I believe, and he lived in Fobbin. Yeah, and Fobbin's just up the road, it's literally two miles away. One of them's buried in Fobbin Church. Um, so yeah, there's that connection. But because I, because of this White White House farm, they they do a thing now called the Living Memorial. I don't know if you've heard of it, but basically, when all the veterans were coming over from Afghanistan and they were getting, being repatriated through. Wooten Bassett, well, that stopped at a certain time, and they 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 just said this is just not 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 acceptable. We need to do something to honour these veterans. So they basically took it upon themselves to do this private memorial. It's called the Living Memorial, and they've dedicated twenty acres of this farm to a memorial to veterans from all sorts of 
wars and things. And my dad, my dad died last year. Okay. And um, he was involved. He was a Korean War veteran. And he was involved through the Korean War Veterans Association. He used to get, they used to have functions at this farm, White, White House farm. And they used to lay on amazing functions. So he used to go there quite regularly. And when he died, we had a tree planted at White House farm, an oak tree in his memorial, to his memorial. So we've got a tree there dedicated to him with a plaque. And there's lots of people do the same. And we've also got one for my great uncle who died during the, uh, the First World War in the Somme. We've got one to him as well. So... Through this, I've become, you know, um, I've, I've come to know these people, you know, and get chatting. But, of course, I don't chat about the Essex Boys murders at all. But I know the location and, and where it all took place, you know, and it's quite interesting. What's your intuition telling you happened? Yeah, from what, I've, from what I gather about it, the two guys that got jailed for it, it's really on weak evidence, really weak evidence. It's it's basically on the, the say-so of, is it Darren Nichols? Yeah, he's, he's sole evidence that apparently they confessed. I think, I, think, I think he said they confessed. But basically, the whole case comes down to them. But they've looked at mobile phone evidence now, haven't they? And they've thrown doubt on that. Because I think it was the first case to use mobile phone evidence in, in the UK. And, and they were saying that they were at... Uh, I think they were saying they were at Bolvin, or one of them was at Bolvin, and and the prosecution was saying they were at a halfway house on the A one two seven, about three miles away, I guess. But who knows? You know, I'm, I, I can't really shed any light on the mobile phone aspect of it because it's not my area of expertise. But you know, I think when you when you got a prosecution based on the say so of one person that's in the frame for drug dealing himself and has got a motive to you know, come up with some information to get himself off the hook. I think it's a bit dodgy. And there's a guy still in prison for it, I think. And he won't admit to it. He could, if he admits to it, he could, he could get parole. What, but he won't admit to what it. What about the way the hit was performed? Is that something you would expect from gangsters or more professional, um, you know, intelligence, cops involved, things like that? I very much doubt it's cops involved. Very much doubt. Mm. But I think to... Blast someone away at close range, three people at close range. That's not someone who's an amateur, you know. That's not an amateur's to do that because that takes you got to be quite. You got to be a certain temperament, let's say, to be able to do that at close range. And then, from what I gather, there was no forensic evidence. There was no there was no glass uh, glass fragments on their clothing. There was no firearms residue on their clothing or on their hands or anything. Now, really. I don't get. I don't go for that. So it is suspicious. Then there's a bigger picture. I think so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I could go into Essex Police. Quite, you know, in my personal experience of Essex Police, I I'm not. I, and, and and when I talk about anyone in the police, I'm not talking about individuals. It's a case of if the cap fits, wear it. I know there's very good people in all police forces, and then there's the bad apples in all police forces, right? So I'm not. I'm not. I'm not targeting at this at the good officers it's a case of if the cap fits wear it but my experience of Essex police is to in the, you know is not good in any way shape or form um recently i caught people setting fire to trees in the local park and we're talking about mature oak trees during a heat wave 
and there was smoke billowing out the bushes and I'm walking the dog and I think, hmm, that's a bit strange. What's happening now? And then I see like a group of lads walk out of the bushes and it turns out there was loads of school kids off. And I thought, I've tied the dog up and I've looked in there, tried to see the source of the fire. And I've found that what they've done is they've put loads of um, grass, dry grass on a plastic chair, probably hoping the plastic chair will go up and take the trees. So I've gone in there and I've put the fire out, extinguished it totally. But we've still got this group of people hanging around trying to set fires, mm. right? And it's been happening a few times there. So I've called the police on the non-emergency line and said, look, this is what's happening. We've got guys here setting fires. I've gone in there, put the fire out. Um, I think you need to, if you've got a unit, can you send a unit up here just to speak to them, hang around, make sure that they go. So this operator on the non-emergency line has come back to me and said, well, if there's a fire being set, you need to call the fire brigade. So I've said to her, look, the fire's out. I've put the fire out. You know, this is a police matter. Arson, antisocial behaviour, whichever way you want to look at it, is a police matter, not a fire brigade matter. No, you need to call the fire brigade. So I've gone, right, okay, thanks. Put the phone down, rung 999, asked for police. So I've explained to the 999 operator now what's gone on. Right, okay, um, yeah, um, just let you know. Um, if you ever come across this again, call the fire brigade. I'm like, and I, obviously at this point, I've had a few choice words to say. Because if I'm coming across this, I'm thinking, what are the members of the public coming across? You know, it's just shocking. There's people trying to set fire to trees here and you don't, and you want me to call the fire brigade when I've told you the fire's out and it's not a fire now. It's now a group of antisocial youths. Not interested. You know, I had another incident whereby my daughter went, we was having a childminder back in, back in the day. And it, she come to me and she said, look, dad, I, I don't want to go to this childminder anymore because she doesn't give us any toys to play with and she shouts at us. So I've said, right, great. Okay, if you don't want to, if you're not happy with her, we'll find you a new childminder. So we moved her to a new childminder. She's now walking to school with the new childminder. Old childminder walks towards her, calls her a little bitch. Okay. So I'm thinking, right, okay, I'm going to go to Ofsted with this. So I go on the Ofsted website to report this childminder to Ofsted and she's not registered. But we've got documentation saying she is registered to the point where we was having we was paying her during the school holidays. You know, when, when we were looking after the daughter, you still have to pay them a certain amount of times during the school holidays. So we're paying this woman as if she's a registered childminder and she's not. So, of course, I'd take it to Essex Police. First of all, they didn't want, want to record the allegation at all at the station. They, this, we're talking sort of 15 years ago now. Didn't want to record the allegation. And I said to them, no, I, I, I think you should record the allegation. And it's like, no, 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 we're not recording it. I said, look, mate, I'm not being funny, but I'm a police officer myself. And, and if an allegation's made, you, you're duty bound to record it. Oh, no, 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 no. It's not like we weren't going to record it. I just got to speak to my sergeant first. You know, so off they go to speak to the sergeant, come back. Yeah, 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 we're going to record it. So to record this allegation, they do nothing with it. So I chase it up. What are you doing about this? Oh, right. Okay. Well, what it is, we've spoken to her. We asked her to come to the police station voluntarily. And she said that she told you she wasn't registered. And I'm like, well, hang on a minute. We've got contracts from Ofsted. I think the official contracts that she signed saying she's an official childminder. So therefore, that's obviously, you know, a load of old pony. So 
you know, to my mind, it was an invest the sort of investigation that someone very young in the job should have been able to sort out very quickly. You go around a house with the contract, take a statement from me, go around a house, explain that she's going to be arrested for on, on you know for fraud. You do a section thirty two search for more documentation. You find out what other clients she's got. You speak to all of those because they're probably paying her thinking she's a registered child minder as well and you've probably got a nice little fraud case right but no 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 she told us that she told you she wasn't registered all oh, right okay so you know rule one of the police of policing is if you've got a power you use it you don't just have someone involuntarily because you 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 you, you then can't do an interview a proper interview you can't do the searches etc etc you use the powers you've got because that gives you the ability to do a proper investigation. Cut a long story short, I then uh, I then make a complaint. An inspector comes around my house and he sanctions this investigation. Said, no, no, a thorough investigation's been done. So therefore, you know, you haven't got a case and, and uh, that's the end of it, really. So I said, OK, Governor, if you're going to sanction that investigation, I'm going to make a complaint. And the complaint has to be about you because you're the one that's putting your head on the block by saying that this has all been done properly. Do you know what he did? He took his own complaint. You're not allowed to do that. And I'm sitting there in my living room going, I can't believe what I'm seeing here. The governor's taking his own complaint. I thought, fine, you crack on with that, governor. You do what you like. We left it, nothing. Phone up the complaints unit. No, we haven't got a complaint. Funny that, isn't it? He'd filed it in the bin. He filed, his, he filed the complaint in the bin. So I told the complaints unit of Essex Police what had happened, right? They come around my house and they said, what do you want doing about it? And I said, look, I'm not here to get other officers in, the, in, 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 in trouble. I want a, a proper investigation done into this fraud. And if you do that and it's been done properly and if the CPS then turn around saying we're not going to run with it, okay, I accept that. But until until such time as you do a proper investigation, I'm not prepared to let it go. So if you reopen the investigation, deal with this fraud, then I'll, I'll drop the complaint against the governor. Right, okay, yeah, great. We signed a form to that effect. I then phone up. What's happening about this investigation? No, 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 you wanted to drop it. <laughs> no, 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 there was conditions attached. I'll tell you what, don't worry about it. I wrote a letter to the district commander. Right, a guy called Chief Inspector Cockgreave at the time, and I absolutely ripped the crap out of him. I just said, "I'm disgusted. You people are, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're you're an embarrassment to the uniform. You know, if I if this is what I think about you, what do the public think about you? You know, it's just shocking. It's just shocking." When you quit, then did your health recover? Yeah. Well, what? Well, I say yeah. It, it was a long process, and it's an ongoing process now. Um, Basically, I did a lot of reading on stuff and I decided to go down what they call an anti-inflammatory diet route. So I started taking lots of anti-inflammatory type ingredients. And it's very difficult to do because you go, well, how do I get cinnamon and cacao powder and flax seeds and chia seeds and maca powder and all this stuff? How do I eat? I can't just have like, oh, I think I'll have a spoonful of cinnamon. You know, it just <laughs> doesn't quite work that way. So you have to work ways of getting that into your body. So I'll basically come up with a smoothie. And I started taking these smoothies. I was getting really bad heartburn. I had a high atis hernia. I was getting really bad acid reflux. I, re I did more reading on that. And it said, basically, if you have a high protein diet and a low carb diet, 
it's really good for acid, whereas if you have a high-carb, low-protein diet, bad for acid. So I changed my diet, basically. Anti-inflammatory, high-protein diet. And over the course of, you know, we're talking five, six years in now, my health got better, and I started exercising. And I I was just walking, just walking. Because I'd blown, my my weight had ballooned. You know, my son got me a scales for Christmas because he's basically, Dad, Dad, get on them scales because you're a fat knacker, (laughs) you know. And I weighed myself and I went, oh, my God, that's not happening. I went out Christmas Day, 10,000 steps, and I, I turned into Forrest Gump. Literally on the, on the strength of those scales, <laughs> and I walked, walked, walked every day. Started watching what I was eating. My weight was coming down. The pains were starting to subside. I binned every piece of medication I I had, all all just cold turkey in the bin, Good. right? And I don't take a bit of medication. I do it all with diet. And I'm, I'm now hill walking and wild camping. I, I'm outdoors all the time, doing stuff, and it's been absolutely work wonders. I would say to anybody, just one step in front of the other, just walk. Don't worry about going to the gym, lifting weights, just walk. It's one of the best exercises you can do. And watch your diet, you know? Very early on, you said that there was very few times you took your work home. Mm. But there were a few exceptions. Did we we cover those? No, we didn't actually. But literally, I, I, I had this knack of take my uniform off, put it in my locker, get in the car, drive out of the gate, finished. But the the, the exceptions were the um, the uh, the Tavistock Square bus bombing. You know, although I wasn't there on the day, you know, and I, I feel for the people that were, I really do, because I don't know how I would have coped with that. You know, I'm going to be honest. Well, picking up the parts and stuff. Yeah, just seeing it. See Dealing it. with people screaming mm. with the legs blown off and stuff mm. like that. It's just awful. En masse. You know, when you've got casualties all around you, it's just awful. Um, but I just saw that BMA building with, there was like, it was like a pink mist up against that building with lumps of gristle mm. on that building. Mm. And um, I've spoken to a friend of mine who was there because every the passage of time, things get a little bit more, and he was there on the day. And I said, there was, wasn't there? I'm not imagining this. And he goes, no, 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 there was. There was, there was lumps on that building, you know. <sighs> it could have been shrapnel, like partly. But to me, it looked like lumps of human remains, you know, on, on splattered against the wall. And, um, yeah, it was, it was quite um, – that played on your mind a little bit. That, awesome. that did. But the other one was the uh, the Battle of Nelson, the big fight down mm. at Lord Nelson. I honestly believe that these guys were the type of follow you home at, after work. So I used to, every time I got in my car, for, for quite a while afterwards, I'd always be very attentive on the mirrors, mm. see if anyone was following me, because I just thought they were the type were going to follow you home and fill you in, mm. you know, because <laughs> they didn't like me. It's quite a common thing in, in policing is you can be involved in a big disturbance or a fight, and the, the culprit will take a dislike to one particular person, one particular officer. They'll, they'll be able to talk to the others, but I don't like him now. And I was the one they didn't like because I was the one that CS sprayed them. Mm. And they, they really didn't like me. And even to the point when they got charged, you normally, you've normally you got a note, uh, a, a report book and you put their reply to caution. Well, I was behind the screen in the wings of the custody and I'm writing it all down and I handed it to my mate and he handed it to them to ask them to sign it and handed it back to me because wow. they just said, keep out of their way. Don't even 
show your face when they're about because yeah. they just took a pathological hatred to me. I don't know why, but I can only think it's because I see Eston. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So is there anything you feel I've left out or is there anything you'd like to say to the viewers in conclusion? No, not at all. All I would say is, you know, this the whole crux, the whole reason for this um, podcast really was just to put a different spin on policing. You know, it's not about knocking the police. I, I fully support the police, but there are problems with the police and it's in all our interests that people become aware of what's going on. Because only then can the police realise they've got a problem and change for the good. Because we all need the police. And at the moment, it's not working. It's not working for us. The, the, the people as a whole, we're not getting a decent level of service. And, and, it, and it's not working for the people that are working in the police either. Because they're rum ragged, they're not getting the support from management. And there are good officers out there. I, I refuse to think that all the officers are bad or not suitable for, for the job. But the last few years, I just think that they've they've lost the way with all the knee-taking, the political bias, which is absolutely plain for anyone to see. The political bias is, is there in police. And policing should always be independent of politics. Because if it's not independent of politics, it can't work. That's my take on it. And it's more powerful when that take is heard from an ex-cop. So thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, thank yeah, you for having yeah, me. Yeah, yeah well cheers. Done. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Gadfly Press is proud to announce the publication of Big Joe Egan, the toughest white man on the planet. And that statement came from none other than Mike Tyson, who wrote the introduction to the book. If you want to check it out, the link is in the description box below the video. It's got almost five stars on Amazon and it is mind-blowing stories of Joe's rise in boxing. You've got the crime story of what went down at the pub, the war at the pub, Joe's incarceration and how the toughest white man on the planet could not be held down, how he rebuilt his life. He's gone from strength to strength and what he's you know, you can see right now what he's doing all over the world. So links will be in the description box below the video. Thanks for watching. And if you want to see the full podcast, it's on our channel now. In which he talks about Michael Francis, Tyson, and loads of big names that he's worked with. Fascinating stories. Check it out. So the book, Big Joe Egan, Toughest White Man on the Planet, is available in all three formats. Audio, ebook, and paperback worldwide on Amazon. Link in the description box.